This is Untimely Reflections, a series of conversations with some of my friends, streamed here through the Nietzsche podcast. All right, everybody, I'm here with the legendary Uber Boyo, um, aka Steph. Uh, which, how do you want to be referred to, actually? <laughs> Call, call me Steph. Call me Steph. I don't want an alias to take me over. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be too dodgy. So call me Steph, by all means. Humble me, you please. You don't want to be identified with the archetype of the Uber Boyo and have it yeah. possess your personality. Um, I don't want to go end up, end up hugging any horses. Is basically what I'm trying to say. Although I know that's a bit of a, a made up meme, a bit of propaganda they use to slander him. But nonetheless, I want to stack odds in my favor. So that's it. Right. I mean, and it's funny, too, because there's so many myths about Nietzsche where it's it's like the, the true stories are almost actually worse. Like when you read about like how he was actually losing his mind, he was like dancing around naked in his apartment and like shredding up his money and um, like signing his letters with like the name The Crucified or Dionysus. It's almost like that, a little more embarrassing than hugging a horse. That, that's actually that's like very interesting to explore because I've, I've often, you know, obviously his big thing was we must, we must be go beyond the entity and you kind of look at the end and it, it doesn't look like he's oscillating between uh, he can't escape you know he can't escape christianity he's tethered to it in some type of way and it's a it's a very fascinating thing to ponder and carl jung had many thoughts on that and maybe we could talk about that that'd be one angle that i'm actually somewhat well dug into and i know that side of things but yeah there's there's a lot a lot of slander there's a lot there's a lot of issues where people try to like re, re like I, I don't know Dismiss the ideas, obviously, by rehabbing the man or, or, or pointing out that uh, something happened with the man and all this stuff. And, you know, you know the spiel. Yeah, it's like, um, you know, Nietzsche was just an angry incel and all that kind of thing. And it's like, <laughs> well, you know, in a way he was. and But in a lot of ways, when you look at, like, the depth of his life, it's way more complicated than that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, we'll definitely get into Carl Jung. I definitely wanted to ask you about that. I guess just to introduce you to the audience who um, may not know you, um, I encountered your videos mainly from people on YouTube sort of referring me, and then I saw you had a huge intersection between Nietzsche and Carl Jung, which I find fascinating because I also am a big fan of Carl Jung. I haven't talked about him a whole lot on the podcast, but um, those two thinkers together, it's really fascinating um sort of how they both they come at the truth at very different angles you could say and they kind of cast different lights or different perspectives on like really deep truths about human nature um so before we get into that though could you maybe um for people who aren't familiar with you what what would be your like in your own words like sort of how you see uh like the overall like goal of your channel and what you try to like present it's, that's actually a very interesting one. This might even get too edgy too fast, but I, I um, generally think that the state of the world right now is obviously going through a, a decadent phase, perhaps we could describe it that way. And things are um, falling apart at the seams. There's quite a lot of, uh, you could even say there's a Dionysian energy present where people are acting crazier and crazier and crazier. And there's quite a big question for me when I was younger, where I grew up and I was part of the myths of my culture, you know, was, if this is going to be sort of a Jungian frame, but I was participating in the hero's journey. I wanted to, you know, I thought I could just go up there and join the, the big bad world and go and, you know, join Hollywood or maybe the music industry or the arts or something like this. And I could tell the myths that, you know, I could make big stories and look at the, the, the mythology of our age and like, you know, point, paint them in a unique way and be a part of this. And maybe I got a little bit jaded at so, some point when I realized that what's going on in the world is um, 
very subversive to Western culture. I remember I went into college and I sat down there and I was like, you know, studious guy, very, very sharp, if I don't say so myself. And they were um, handing me the Communist Manifesto. They were handing me critical theory. They were handing me Judith Butler and stuff like this. And these are all theorists and, and frames that were critiquing this thing called the Western canon and Western culture. And they didn't even hand me stuff like Plato or anything like this. I remember I, I, like, I basically, when I was in it for a while, I basically decided I don't even want to go to these classes anymore because they're just blathering on about this evil Western culture thing. And so I went and I... Um, I uh, went to the library and I just started reading the, the pre-Platonics. And then eventually that led me to Nietzsche. You know, I started reading the Western canon that they're giving out about so much. And then on top of that, I was big into the arts. And so I like I wasn't learning any skills. I was going in there and they were just, you know, arguing all day about how much they hate phallogocentrism and stuff like this. And I was like, I want to be able to play piano, use my hands, sing, write, articulate, speak. I want all these things and I wasn't getting it. So I basically dropped out. But then I was kind of out on my own traveling about the world and learning about Nietzsche, learning about Jung myself at this point, going and like learning skills. I was going into like fighting gyms. I was going and I was performing in um, musical bands and stuff like this. I was doing all sorts of stuff, trying to just kind of push myself forward and, and you know, participate in the game. And more and more, I began to learn that things are not always right in the state of Denmark. I started to see Jordan Peterson pop up. Like he basically showed up when I was just after dropping out of college and he basically goes, um, everything's fucked, guys. <laughs> like things are upside down. We're in a terrible position. And then over the course of the next couple of years, things really started to unfold and you started to see this um kind of decadent cultural rot show up and there was this very big animus against the west and all this types of hate and stuff like this and i guess i started my channel in the miasma of that as me in some sense just articulating my intellectual development if you will but i would like to think a better focused goal and perhaps this is something i need to work on is um showing people a different attitude a different path a different um, way where you can say look I'm a western person I connect with the, the the western world there's this great depth of knowledge perspective and history that's far more intelligent than anything else you get presented the current institutions are all basically um, mind washing you to be a drone in a very negative way and um, yeah you should go out of that develop a lot, set of practical habits that are going to make you stronger and better and healthier but also become savvy and intentional and smart and articulate and well read basically what I've noticed is that an awful lot of uh, what you see nowadays is just this mediocrity swooping over all of the world. There's these people staying in the institutions, getting educated on crap, not being intelligent or sophisticated in the way that they articulate themselves, out of shape, not healthy, none of these things, not artistic, not creative. And then um, we basically got to be rebels and break out of that and become the educated. We got to become like, you know, jacked, handsome, educated, sharp, well-spoken, creative, artistic. We got to be at all because nobody else seems like they're doing it right now. So if I was to give my thesis, there you go. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, I, I like the positivity um, because a lot of the people who are who perceive a lot of the same things that you bring up, they get really pessimistic, right? Or really just like uh, cynical about the possibility of doing anything about it. Um, and it's sort of like, would you would you maybe say like a large part? And maybe this is like too like nerdy philosophical, but. Um, I kind of interpret what you're you're doing as almost like showing people how to reject utilitarianism because so much of like what utilitarianism promised us is like you'll be happy when you have all the like material comfort and safety in your life, right? Once you could just order Uber Eats all day and you know um, like just turn off your mind, like plug in, drop out, like binge Netflix or whatever. Um, that's happiness, right? Like you, you've got the relief of suffering. You've got all the pleasures at your fingertips. And then a lot of people 
who follow that, that at a certain point they look around, and they're like, wow, I'm really not happy. Yeah. Um, and if you read Nietzsche, it's like really obvious why, right? Yeah. He basically shows you, it's like your pleasure in pain, like utilitarians, you want to get rid of pain, you're going to get rid of pleasure by that same token, basically. Um, if you really want to be quote unquote happy, you have to build your temples on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius. Um, and so, I don't know, I guess maybe that's my reaction to that is like, it seems like that's how you're orienting yourself. And so maybe I'd, I'd be interested in your reaction. I also did want to comment briefly too. It sounds like we have a very similar background insofar as I also am a musician and uh, I I also that. am a also a college dropout. Hey, <laughs> well, let's yeah. fucking go. And let's, yeah. let's go. Yeah, well, look, this is... This is sort of the way of the world right now. It's like it's the all this again. It's very presumptuous, but all of the smart people seem to be dropping out of college. You know, they seem to be getting out of the institutions in general. Um, and I all right, I'll I'll try to take these one at a time because I think you asked some great questions. Um, first of all, maybe before I get to utilitarianism, I think if we're going to start shilling Nietzsche, this is of course what we have to do here, guys. This is like, you know, our careers are on the line for this. So we got to shill Nietzsche. This is what the channels are all about. And he really helped me make sure that I did not become pessimistic ever. It really just clicked with me. And this is because basically when I was in college, I was drawn to Nietzsche. It's again, this is such a great testament to the way he approached his job. He said that I'm going to be the stylish, the most stylish, best, clearest, like I'm going to be a joy to read and through that I'm going to suck people into my reality and, and then I'm going to have my effect upon them. He's very seductive in his way that he approached things. And so I always loved him, you know, because of the, the very like, you know, basic bitch reasons. I was like, oh, he has cool quotes. <laughs> and I was like, I better yeah. read this Nietzsche guy. And it's like the Ubermensch sounds cool. I better read this Nietzsche guy. And of course I got into him and I'd read through him and I'd understand nothing. I didn't have a clue what he was banging on about. It was like some Irish dude. Like, I was like, what the fuck do I know about, you know, the high philosophy and stuff like this. But he would always instantiate these mindsets. You know, you're always getting these mindsets of like, well, you know, what's the big one? Nihilism is coming. Make sure you do not succumb to which you overcome this. Or even more sophisticated, there's this um, pessimism exant in Europe because of Schopenhauer, the rise of European Buddhism. Make sure we, we my project is to try overcome that and develop a strong pessimism or a, um, you could even say a, a vitalism that's going in the right direction. And so he is this constant counter signaling of being a, a black pillar, you could say this. And I was reading this long before I even knew about the denialism of black pillar. And so when I became more aware of this, he had established in my, my head already this frame. He had, he had spoken to those instincts inside of me that wanted to be a winner. And that was really, really, really powerful. And so I've never really struggled with like um, black pills or anything like that. I've always just been able to just, it's just very easy for me to overcome that. And I look at that and it's like, it's like Nietzsche was a vaccine if I was to be uh, topical. Well, maybe topical a year ago or something. <laughs> but he really like, when I came across the blunt punch in the face of like Western nihilism is actually evolving in this like true, clear to see collapse of the culture around us and the cultural institutions and many of the things that make up the social fabric. Like that's actually happening in real time and it's shocking and it's really inconvenient. Like it, it's like it has the potential to destroy your life in so many different ways. I'm seeing that stuff happening right in front of me. And because of his, uh, his ideas, I was just uh, inoculated against it. If you will, I just, like, I could digest it much, much faster than most people. So I try my best to shield that if I was to put that at, at a, a four, if you'd like to have any thoughts on that, I'd love to hear them or, 
do you want me to continue ranting about utilitarianism? No, I would say I had somewhat of a similar experience uh, insofar as like I got into Nietzsche the same way where it's really his style. When you start reading him, it's it's unlike any other philosopher, really. And then yeah. he, when he draws you in, he does. He plays upon um, all of your instincts to... He actually, I would say he reveals to you that you have an instinct to glorify things like strength and beauty and self-determination and all of these values that we've kind of like been told you should question. And he's kind of pointing you to the fact it's like, no, actually instinctually they're unquestionable. And you can intellectualize in response to that all you want, right? But there's something in you, um, and maybe this isn't true of all people, you know, some people are pathological, but it, there's something in you that aspires to, um, you know, things like beauty and health and fitness and stuff like that. And it's maybe just by like a brief contrast to bring in, I've been hearing a lot about this work by Malcolm Bull called the anti-Nietzsche and his whole shtick in that book is like, if you really, he complains cause he, I think he's coming from sort of like a cultural left background and he complains that a lot of the leftist um, thinkers never escaped from Nietzsche, Nietzsche's influence, even the ones who criticized him, <laughs> they were still kind of like under his uh, spell, so to speak. And he basically surmises that the only way to really oppose Nietzsche is to read Nietzsche like a loser. Those are his, his, his exact words. And basically, you should self-identify with like weakness and like pitifulness and you know being pathetic and ugly and just awful at everything. And that's how you truly oppose Nietzsche. And when I heard that, I was like, it almost refutes itself. Like I don't even need to give a response to that, right? Uh, somebody yeah. commented on a recent video, they're like, you need to read The Anti-Nietzsche by Malcolm Bull. And the more I looked into it, I'm like, what? Yeah, okay, sure. Ident Self-identify with weakness and failure and yeah. all of those things and see how that goes for your life. No, this is this is an, a very, very fascinating point. And um, it kind of, it comes down, it starts to present the, the, the surreal simplicity of the situation, you know, where it's like, this is going to sound very harsh, but it's like, it's the ugly versus the beautiful, something like this. Or I think a better way is to say those who affirm life and those who, who sort of deny life or who are wary of life, as Nietzsche says, because that's the, the strict psychology of it. But you see this an awful lot. Like I, a couple of my TikToks and stuff like that have done done really well, and some of my YouTube shorts and and all this, and that they've like blown up and they've gone into um maybe you call it the leftist circles or something like this. I'm not even sure that's the right name for them, but something like this, the life deniers perhaps. And you you just see this like torrent of hate pour out like this, and it's it's Nietzschean resentment in its strictest sense. I, I like see the, the category manifest. And then there's these people, they obviously don't work on themselves. They don't care about personal standards. They don't care about civilizational standards. They don't care about beauty. They don't care about anything that that's high. They just hate it. They just hate anything like that. And they believe that it's evil and it's caused pain in some type of way. And if they hear about me, they obviously just like resort to all these like associations that they have in their heads with them. Um, young men these days and they'll be like oh young men all going onto youtube and trying to self-improve and like, you know, escaping escaping and this is it they're like they're going to this some type of like these online networks that are brainwashing them into being toxic and being evil and they're all like getting together and planning how they can form like incel death squads or some fucking crazy shit and you're just kind of thinking to yourself it's like like how how like obviously these people just don't have it's almost like they don't have the empathy they don't have the the something inside their spirits where they want to aspire to this type of stuff and then they don't have the empathy to understand that like maybe there's young guys out there who have 
you know, desires to pursue these things. And this is why they go and they, they, they're rejecting all these institutions and they're going and trying to find places where they can contact the, the higher virtues and, and find an outlet for their bravery and an outlet for their, their ambition. And they want to build, you know, architecture and they want to build um, paintings and they want to build teams and build, create businesses and all this type of stuff. And that energy is just, that can't, that can't be a natural instinct inside of man. That, that, is, that has to be pathologized by them. They have to say that's wrong. And instead, everybody should, you know, resort back to, as you said, going to that utilitarian, lying down, having Uber, eating pizza and going on Reddit and commenting about how terrible the world is and the fact that Elon Musk has turned sides and all this cra crazy stuff and it's it's actually fascinating to culturally see that because that's what's becoming manifest it's in some sense the way I would articulate the utilitarian question is that, that's the character of the last man manifest in its perfect example like he was Nietzsche was just so on the money it was unbelievable it floors me the more I, I learn about what he was saying that there's this um, mediocre that's even even that I'm not sure does does it well enough there's this swath this massive volume of people in this world who have an arrogant sense of themselves they lack the empathy and the higher conceptualization to see other realities and they're motivated by a very dull blunt resentment for anything that is striving for something else and they want to demoralize it and they want, like it's it's really it's like the slave morality thing they want to instantiate inside of it a sort of guilty conscience that makes it stop taking action and pushing towards its its a better future and all this and for it to just kind of like you know freeze up and become sick like them and then get pulled down and become one of them it's absolutely fascinating to see that stuff so yeah man i, I agree yeah. i guess well yeah the last man i i, I think that's an interesting way to put it because you, you you were like mediocrity but it's like almost not the right word i almost wonder it's like it's almost paradoxical it's like the last man is like me it, it's like exceptional mediocrity. It's like what the modern age is creating is like m mediocrity as something exceptional. It's so mediocre uh, that it's almost like you can't even believe it, right? And that's, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, I, I think in one of your videos where you were, it's a neologism, but the term like midwits. Yeah. Uh, I think it was a video where you were talking about capital as um, like reconceiving of it as sort of like energy and people like Elon Musk, you know, that everyone loves to hate on. The people who are, you know, of like, we'll say like seven figure income, right? Um, people in who don't make anywhere near that amount of money have a hard time conceiving of how different somebody who makes that level yeah. could be a very different person from somebody who's in the nine or ten figure income, right? Like in Elon Musk. Um, and that those people who are sort of like what we conceive of as the rich or what the you know, mediocre type person conceives of as quote unquote, the rich is often they're conceiving of somebody who's more kind of still in the upper middle class, right. Uh, or the, or in the professional managerial class who are actually really like ordinary sort of middling sort of people who have just kind of gone through the system and accepted the bureaucracy as it is and found out how to like work their way through that. Whereas, um, really what Nietzsche is, what he is talking about um, are the really exceptional people who are even like well beyond that. And they actually end up like spending way more of their money or way more of their capital mm -hmm. um, and making, because they make like risky decisions. They take, uh, they make big moves and sometimes that isn't actually the most financially viable thing. Um, I don't know. Maybe you would, could expand on that um, in terms of, um, I don't know how you see, um, how we regard like a lot of the people, not just like the rich quote unquote, you know, that 
like as it as they're caricature caricaturized. I don't know if that's a word caricatured. Yeah. So Nietzsche, as as I understand it, you actually strike me as somebody who's like much more scholarly to me and all this. So I'd love for you to like shape my ideas as I articulate them and and sort of um yeah like you you just seem very very well read in this. But Nietzsche has that brilliant quote where he says that uh, uh the purpose of a nation is to produce five or seven great men or something like this, and he continues to expand in the way that he does like you know in a separate book you'll have like a paragraph that refers back to this thought and then you're trying to like put it together like this collage where, what exactly he's he's talking about here and so i think in a set like a, se a couple of separate sections in other books he talks about how um you you only have so much energy you know you only have so much energy as a nation to spend and he's complaining about France and Germany here. And he's saying that like the French spend their energy on culture while the Germans spend it on politics. And then at one point, the, the Germans are spending it on culture while the French are spending it on politics. And so you're, you're um, putting out that energy. And so when Goethe was getting produced, they were creating a great man like Beethoven, Goethe. And then uh, France was meanwhile creating Napoleon, you know, a sort of political Superman and all these types of things. And so all cultures like all, what we are is these big balls these massive balls of energy and Nietzsche then continues in another section to talk about how great men are usually the end of an extremely deep and long process you could look at Napoleon as the end of France the the, the final uh, celebratory phase of France which began maybe all the way back with Charlemagne you know like it was building up over all those centuries and then it just explodes with titanic nuclear force like like um like uh like Napoleon did another great example example it's germany like germany true kant is building up this energy it's building up this this uh nexus of force nietzsche talks about this in twilight of the idols like he obviously always always is the first to come up and complain and, and and bitch about the germans but he says quite nakedly in twilight of the idols that he um he really thinks that the germans are sitting on a wealth of potential that is probably the biggest in the world at the time they have just so much intellectual capital will energy he's just really worried about how it's going to get um used and of course the first pulse of that getting used in a political way like he thought that it could have maybe get got manifest as something cultural and maybe had it went a way different direction than it did but of course it manifests as um uh bismarck and you know the franco-prussian war in his day then it's world war one is that real big energetic pulse to try and make germany a part of the world stage such a surreal war where they're running around and they're uh they've got those spoke Zarathustra in their knapsacks beside the Bible like such a crazy idea to think about what went on there and of course then Hitler and, and the Nazis were like the last final pulse of the German idealist energy trying to burst out and assert its identity and assert what it is and then it's basically spent and that's basically what Nietzsche was saying is that like we'll get this quantum of energy in Germany and we be very careful how we spend it I'm not liking what I'm seeing here like it's going to be very very politicized I think we could do a way better job if we culturalize this and make it something sort of like pan-European this is just political stuff Point being is that it spends it gets spent by the middle of the century. Then what you see is the similar process happening in America. You know, America has this pulse; it sucks in all this profound energy. After the war, it spends all that energy in producing basically um, popular Western culture, which is actually an amazing culture when you look at it. Like I think the '80s is one of the amazing places to look at. And I look at someone like Elon Musk, and I see Elon Musk as like this brilliant example of one of those great men, those great cultural men, actually, to come out of that American um, store of energy because Elon Musk is like such a perfect symbol for all these things. It's funny how like everybody loves Elon Musk. Well, they used to anyway. They loved Elon Musk um, in, on a level that was 
a thousand times higher than Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey or Bill Gates. They never looked at those characters with the the pure Superman energy that they they projected onto Musk. And this is, I think, because Musk represented something much higher than everybody else. Musk was like the guy who risked all his money to set up SpaceX, risked all his money to set up uh, the electric car thing. He was aiming for the big dreams. He, he really spoke to the collective will of the people. And you could see that the people, the energy inside of the people, what they wanted, they were happy to give a man all their, their, their potential, all their energy and say, you're beyond good and evil. Go and, and fucking take us to the Mars, bro. I don't care. I don't care what you do anymore. Like, just go and fucking do it. And he had all this goodwill. He was just the, the most loved man, I think, in, in all of the West at one point. And he became the richest man in all of the West, of course. And now look what happens. He actually dissents against this. He starts to say some statements like, I think that we, we won't be able to reach Mars if we keep allowing this cultural movement to grow and not put some checks on it, not stop censorship and stuff like this. And so he pivots goes to Twitter, goes to something that's very polarized. Um, it's a sin against the collective energy in the West. And of course, his net worth starts to cl crash. I think he's doing something that I generally consider good because I don't like the state of the discourse either. But it's so fascinating to see that um, all that cultural goodwill and energy then gets stolen away from him at that point. And it, it starts to fall. And so I think um, that's a fascinating thing to observe and, and to really think about what, what that might mean and, and explore that um, the, the kind of pulse of energy and the, the explosion of supermen coming out of peoples and how that actually also in some way relates to the will of the people as Nietzsche would often talk about in um, how like nature is using nature is using uh, people in order to create these types of characters yeah I you know what but it kind of struck me when I was like listening to you just now is like I think on some subconscious level like when you were kind of going over how you know the Zuckerbergs of the world never measured up to Elon Musk back sort of the during the period when it was acceptable to love Elon Musk. Now it's almost like the the hive mind has said no. So um, you can't really express those opinions without people like projecting all sorts of political crap on you or whatever. Because like I would also like the Twitter files being released, I think was one of the most important things anyone's ever done um, in like <laughs> yeah. recent history. But um, but comparing I was thinking about that of sort of Elon Musk uh, in the popular imagination before. And it's like he was pointing beyond where we are now. He was indicating that there were horizons beyond what we can currently see or perceive for the way the human race lives and does things, and that we can actually move on to something else, that there are other broader horizons possible for us. And I think about the way he was regarded compared to like Jeff Bezos, who was also the richest man alive. Uh, for a time and Jeff Bezos has always been generally kind of hated and then you think about it like it's like well on a subconscious level you have one guy who has this sort of vision for humanity whereas what Bezos kind of did was like to streamline and make really efficient our distribution of like goods and resources right which is an it is a big deal like what Amazon's yeah. done like a lot of the people who hate it still use it but uh it's also had like kind of these negative consequences in terms of like monopolizing power in the economy and it's had these consequences of sort of in a way i i've heard people even like lament the convenience of amazon and i think it's another way where it's like okay he really streamlined the, the utility <laughs> you know uh the utilitarian concerns that most people have he made it a lot more easy and convenient but did he actually like which is a great thing for business right but did he actually point a horizon beyond where we were going no so yep. it's like you see then how that difference in like vision is really 
the, what the issue is, right? Um, you know, a lot of people think that there's just resentment towards um, the rich in general, which, you know, it, does, it certainly exists, but you can definitely see how that can completely transform if someone's actually sort of offering something or pointing the way forward. And I don't even mean offering in the sense, the vulgar sense of like, you know, bribing people or like offering in the sense of like a politician would do. Um, but, you know, giving a sort of new vision or a new goal or a new path or a new like image of life in a way. And people actually did begin to visualize a different future, I think, with because of some of the things he's done. Um, I do, I would say I, I have a kind of a more complicated relationship with like the businessman as Nietzsche's great man. Um, and we can get into that if you want, but I don't know if you wanted to respond to like kind of what I was saying just I now comparing the two. I think that's a, a very astute observation and I think a very important one. Again, for this black pill problem, you know, we're looking around and we're seeing the nihilism and there's this feeling that there's this cultural hegemony of these people who are, are spiteful and resentful. And there's definitely, you know, they've definitely got a, a seize the institutions, maybe we could say this. And they've definitely got a loud voice in all this. And I definitely think Western values, as we are framing them for ourselves, are very permissive of this type of negativity. And we're shooting ourselves in the foot an awful lot. But at the same time, you know, nature, nature cannot be rationalized out of the way. Like we are what we are and our souls decide what we decide. And of course, Nietzsche is constantly saying stuff like the Ubermensch is the meaning of the earth. As I, the passage I just tried to articulate, he's talking about how like peoples are these big quantums of energy that they suck up all this energy from all this effort. And then it gets expressed in great men. And ultimately people can't, you know, a, a giant collective, our souls can't lie. Our souls can't, can't betray us. People want greatness. They want the highest. We're all pagans when it comes down to it in that way. Like we want Julius fucking Caesar. We want to believe that we're going to fucking space. We want to believe that we're going to Mars. We want to believe that. We want to, we want to participate in this. The most, like no matter what your thoughts are on something like this, if you say to any young guy at whatever age, you tell him like, we're going to travel, we're going to get in a spaceship, we're going to go to that fucking thing in the sky. The kid's going to get excited. Big things hype us up. Our souls are built for this. This is the, you know, the human spirit, if you will. And most of these utilitarian things just don't get people that interested. It feels off. It doesn't feel right, you know? Even some of the most, um, like even some of the ones that are actually very, very interesting, like feeding the world or even cleaning up the environment. For some reason, that just stuff just doesn't hit people quite in the, the level of imagination maybe the environment one does as as this idea of like going far off into the moon or something like this or like super technological projects to save the world it's interesting like if you're going to build an interesting engineered car or something like this this is um going to get people an awful lot more hyped up than maybe like amazon donating to environmental charities it's it's, it's very interesting how that works so did you see um or sorry just to interject did you see constantine kissens uh like address to the oxford union that's kind of been going around I did not. Why? What, what went down there? I'll look it up here. Oh, it was basically, uh, he just, he, he made basically sort of that argument about climate change that he was like, okay, if you all care about climate change, you know what you're going to have to do, right? You're going to have to work and innovate. Um, he basically gave this impassioned speech for the, the West as, um, you know, the civilization that's had this gumption to go and innovate and overcome problems with, by bettering ourselves, basically. And, uh, yeah. um, and I think that's sort of, like, I remember, I, I guess I could say back like in the 60s, maybe the left wing was at times the side that kind of articulated that future, right? You had like Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek, sort of like a left libertarian yes. vision, yes. Um, where it's like actually showing a vision of the future that's like beyond where we are now. 
and um, where mankind's bettered themselves in all sorts of ways. But it, you notice everyone focuses on like Star Trek as a utopia, but the show isn't about like utopian Earth. It's about a bunch of people on the frontier, right? Because yep. that's what's actually exciting to us. Whereas I think a lot of the attitude of the left has kind of reversed from that Star Trek idea. And it's funny because you can look at like the Star Trek they're making now and it's all like super negative and dark and anti-heroes yeah. and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, so I don't know. I, I think that's like, again, this is such an astute observation. Some, maybe this goes over people's heads, but like this is, I think this is a massive white pill. Something to be very positive about is that the 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 people's soul will not respond to Jeff Bezos. He will they will not respond to utilitarian like you know you say to them we're going to make a giant the world a giant marketplace. It's like just people can't get hyped about that. It's just not right for us. It's not where we sit. Maybe it's the West like you know something about this, but the big dreams like we're looking for that. That's inside of us, and maybe it's something that we'll have and we can spend it a couple of more times and attempt to get it, and then it'll be done, and then we will all be last men, and the project will be over. Project man. We'll go back to, you know, the we'll, we'll start to degrade evolutionary, as Nietzsche would say. But I think that's a very interesting thing to, to think about. The same way as like um, Napoleon. Napoleon's the perfect symbol of this. He comes during the most utilitarian revolution of all time. They show up and they're like, uh, liberty, fraternity, equality. And he comes in and he establishes the absolute return to nature. And he becomes the emperor, you know? And he's uh, he's like, we're going to fucking take over Europe with cannon. What's this, his crazy quote where he's got like, two cannon, all men are equal. That is my version of uh, liberty, fraternity, equality, or something <laughs> like this. And, and this is exactly it. Like some dude shows up rocking and rolling, like playing heavy metal in the back and actually like pushes bring evokes out of people that uh, that monstrous energy the, the, Nietzsche called it the classical ideal of a superman and what does he mean by that well it's like when you were when we were you know lions in the jungle thousands millions billions of years ago the lion you know the big alpha lion would come marauding around and all of us would be scared of the lion because he'd just be this force of nature that we couldn't stop it's that type of thing where Julius Caesar launches himself upon Gaul. What are we going to do about him? Like he's like a lion attacking us. He's just, he's an apex predator. Napoleon explodes and it's the same thing, like this apex predator and everybody's emotions are moved towards it. And the French people are like, I will die for you. I know, I don't care what you represent. I, I'm fighting for you. I love you. And he's beyond good and evil at that point. And he represents something massive. Hitler had the same thing out of the Germans at his time. And now you see the likes of, I'm just comparing Elon Musk to Hitler. Here we go. This is, you know, but this is this is what i mean is that you get elon musk and he has that type of permission off people because he's aiming for the absolute apex the stars and people's souls no matter there's no ideology that can cover this up people's souls are like yeah let's go for it stalin found this out during world war ii when he was fighting against the 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 nazis he realized that communism just wasn't working so he went back to this he basically goes to national socialism he goes to this like nationalistic russian ideal and he's presenting that you look at the propaganda of the Soviets and the, the Germans and it's all like, you know, blonde supermen fighting in this like giant you know, titanic war against this big evil empire. This is exactly it's the same story because they're speaking to people's instincts. And then when the communists win. They don't revert back to communism. They go into Stalinism, which is Stalin's creating the Soviet Union as these like rocketeering experts. These people are going to be in space first. In the 60s, they're in a space race against the, the other empire. And you see this all this stuff show up. There's not like the equality stuff is obviously there, but it's just not, it does not work at the forefront. It does not work at the, the, the identity level of stuff. And that's a really, really big deal. And I think this is be, like, you know, the political categories is, is a very interesting thing to see them shift. But I think that's because the political categories are ultimately like 
not the true categories of reality when it comes down to this stuff, you know? Like these, this is the instinct of ascendancy in man. And if the left had it there 60 years ago, well, then they had it. They were representing it and they stopped representing it. And all of a sudden they've lost all blessings from the intelligent, from the ambitious, from the creative. All of us are turning away from them. All of us are like, we're not interested anymore. And if the right wing are going to represent a fair play to them. But I've seen loads of dudes who are looking at like the conservative right wing and being like, these guys aren't aiming for the stars either. You know, they just want to get you to, they don't just want to ban porn and stuff. Fair enough. Like it's kind of degenerate, but at the same time, it's like you know, do do you want to move from having left wingers control your institutions to some Catholic priest telling you to pay a tithe or something like this? Like that doesn't seem like any step forward. You know what I mean? And so it's like these these big instincts are actually the money note, and that's what people want to capture. And Elon Musk has it. And I guess the the kind of crisis in the West right now is like, are are they, are, are these uh, maybe you could say that these these resentful last men going to try cuckold that instinct and castrate it out of us and, and not give us a chance to express it properly and basically destroy us. Yeah, I think the answer to that is yes. But um, <laughs> <laughs> to, and to answer in one word, I think, yeah, I also kind of perceive that what constitutes left and right, I mean, obviously, you know, left and right goes back to the French Revolution, which you mentioned, which it really bears no relation to our politics of today because there's no... Yeah monarchist, somebody's a Republican in terms of supporting a form of a Republic. Um, it's just, yeah, they seem like temporary expedients, but it's almost like you have to, there's always like a dichotomy. Maybe if I can get a little too Hegelian here, there's always seems to be like some opposition in society that's playing itself out. And then that like sorts itself into the political realm somehow. So, um, I don't know exactly how it works. Um, because I'm sure there's, you know, a myriad psychological factors that you could go into. And I guess on that note, maybe we could uh, change topics a little bit because um, we, maybe we could bring in Carl Jung, which you've uh, done a lot of work talking about. Um, and I guess maybe my first question to you um, would be, you have a attitude overall of the need to return to these values which are so inculcated into mankind that they're like evolutionary imperatives almost or I, I wouldn't even use imperative but sort of like so deep within our instinct that there's just this certain language of symbols um that's deep within the collective unconscious there's this certain way of understanding and approaching the world um that we kind of mess with uh we think we can consciously mess with it and tinker with it but that ultimately um that doesn't actually work for whatever reason, because, you know, uh, if you try to repress certain elements of the self that are that deeply a part of us, they're just going to be projected onto the external world, or they're going to be pushed into your shadow, or any number of these things he talks about. And so Jung seems to ultimately come to the position that the religious language um, that we've had for thousands upon thousands of years for sort of dealing with this, and the religious values even that have been handed down to us are what we have to kind of learn to put our faith into yet again. Whereas with Nietzsche, it seems that um, that's not an option. Like, God is dead. And um, that has a serious, you know, that's a beautiful uh, thing. It's also a terrible thing, right? It's the opening of every opportunity, but it's also the collapse of our entire European morality, possibly. Um, and so Nietzsche seems to come down on the side of that we have to still, in spite of that, find a way to move on from that. And so how do I, I guess I would ask, like, 
maybe what side of that issue do you come down on and what how do, or do you see some means of reconciling Jung and Nietzsche in that respect yes okay so i've loads to say on this so i'm going to try take it step by step and like if i we can cycle back to things and all this i think to try tether it to the previous thought will be the this smoothest transition and think about this idea of the self because you know a lot of us are going to be informed by Jung through Jordan Peterson. And so we'll think that Jung is maybe heavily shilling, is shilling Christianity. But I think Jungian theory is a little bit separate from like pure, you have to turn Christian. And I'll explain what that means in a second. So you could look at that same idea of there's these collective of people and they, they suck up all this energy among themselves. They share all this energy. Another example I'll give just to continue to illustrate this. Good Ireland. Ireland was in, enslaved by the English for 800 years and then eventually they sucked together all their collective energy in the island and pointed that energy towards revolution for the sake of freedom. So that's a, a collective of people unifying under one categorical identity or set of stories or mythology. They create this image of themselves inside of their heads this is the Celtic Irishman. You'd probably think of it as like the drunk motherfucker running around like Conor McGregor. But like, you know, it's actually very deeply made by our poets. Our poets were giving us this identity of like the free Irishman, the, you know, the peasant, the farmer wandering around, the, the people who are independent uh, as an antagonist to the big British empire that rules the world with its ships and its, you know, um, its, its uh, complex political processes and all this. So we created this identity and this entity we then weaponized in order to push ourselves free of, um, of of the English. And of course, we integrated Christianity into this. We presented ourselves as Catholics versus the Protestants, which were all English. That was sort of like, obviously, that was a religious thing, but that is also a little bit married to like a race thing because all the Protestants were obviously Brits, all the Catholics were obviously Irish, and then it's obviously married to all sorts of other things as well. And none of these things really come superordinate. They're all blended together in this soup of creating this identity. And fundamentally, it's our instinct for desire for freedom, our desire for uh, our own destiny being expressed. You could say that deep inside of ourselves, we looked at all things that make up what it is to be Irish. It is to be, you know, Celtic, pagan, from the Irish land, uh, against England, uh, Catholic. We looked at all of those and we, we that formed this unified image of who we are. And we expressed this and this expressed as be, us being separate to them, us being separate to the English and us expressing ourselves in this way. This is a, a relevant revelation of ourself if you will us fulfilling ourself us us connecting with our authentic self if you could if you could imagine ireland like some type of you know hippie hipster girl going out to india or something like this this is us finding ourselves and then taking action upon that which involved violence and guns now when I'm talking about Elon Musk and all this, like the American West goes through a similar process. We have this collective set of people and they have a huge array of complex experiences that shape who they are. They have their Christian past. They have the American revolutions. They have the civil wars. They have World War II. They have the 80s. They have the 60s. They have liberalism and Anglo theory that came from the British Empire. There's this massive array of ideals and there's like science and everything all of this stuff is like compressed into America all at once and this goes to shape the American self the American self-image and we don't control that like how could any one person decide what America is when there's the titanic 
uh, oceans, the titanic tides of all those forces are all united in this one people. Like you can't go back and rewrite the history of the Civil War to rewrite World War II, to re rewrite uh, the 1960s, to rewrite Ameri uh, English Anglo-liberal theory. You can't do that stuff. Like America is what it is. It's never going to be anything else. You can't like go back and take Christianity out of America. That's fundamentally part of the story. And so Jung in some senses, like, you know, he, he would say that, like, I, it's obviously just smarter to figure out what you are and make the fucking most of that instead of trying to turn around mm. and be like, okay. I'm going to do something else, you know? I'm going to go decide and what they're doing right now is like, we're going to reform everything into this atheist woke thing and just deny our history. That's stupid. That's not going to work. You could argue, you could put a very good argument against Nietzsche and say like, if Nietzsche meant create heavier than he meant reevaluate he has the same type of problem he Nietzsche might have been saying we need to you know he, he doesn't say this but this is how you could frame this argument this idea of like ditching Christianity ditch liberalism ditch this ditch that and then we'll go back to like a sort of Greco paganism and then install it in the 21st century it's like that's just not going to work guys that's just, like it's just denial of what we actually are denial of reality denial of who it's denial of yourself as well and in some sense you probably throw out an awful lot of babies with the bathwater too you got to be very very careful careful of that. So in, in order to understand Jung, you can understand his his fundamental thought of like, all right, in this collective, this is obviously relevant on an individual perspective. That's a, another fascinating conversation. But in this collective sense, we have uh, a self-image. We have a self-identity that's been crafted by history. You, nobody get, is above history. We don't, we don't escape history. And characters like Elon Musk's are expressions of that collective will that is manifesting out of that stuff. And if you want to sit down now and say to ourselves, how do we manifest the values out of our culture? You first should try to affirm your culture, embrace your culture, and integrate your culture. And only then could you maybe push it beyond into something new. And at that point, you could probably only innovate a tiny little little bit and you won't be the end point it'd be very unlikely for you to be the end point even the likes of um the nazis and all that type of stuff like they were a fulfillment of a historical process that took hundreds if not thousands of years and they, there's no way that they'd have been able to just invent that stuff randomly that manifesting the the german ideal um idea this is like you know wagner was the century before them and he established many of the mythological paradigms and he was calling back and integrating all of christianity and like parsifal and stuff like this and he was trying to mix it with paganism and he was going back even further then and connecting with the pagan german roots and all this and this is these are incredibly complicated things and very very difficult and so there's there is a, a sort of simplicity an awful lot of us have where we try to think that like all right we'll just reject christianity and then we'll go to the new Nietzschean world order or Christians the Christians do this too oh we'll just r forget about the scientific process it's like that was the the most defining thing of the last 400 years is that western man became scientific there's no we're not getting past that yes I know an awful lot of people on the like Sam Harris and all that have made science really cringe and all this but we we are we are the Promethean West. That's our identity. And we must embrace that. And Christianity and, and that need to fight itself out. And they either need to, one of them needs to come out as dominant or one of them, something like this needs to happen. And that's kind of happening right now. But that's sort of what we are. So Jung is very much like, figure out who you are, first of all, and, and be very, very diligent and, and really have a gravitas about what that is. And Jordan Peterson presents that very well up to a point, but he leans very heavily then on, on the sort of um, Christianity. And I don't think he, he tells the other story, which is the sort of idea of like the West being ambitious and Promethean and ascendant. And he doesn't tell the Elon Musk version of the West, which is a missed opportunity because that's the one I think that would actually hype most people up and attract what you're looking for, which is all the young, smart men. I definitely want to ask uh, 
delve a bit more to, into Jordan Peterson in, in a little bit here. I will just say, thinking I, what you say makes a lot of sense, but there there's still some aspects that I think are, I think maybe it, I'll just sort of like heighten the um, <laughs> the conflict between Nietzsche and Jung then, because right, you're sort of uh, pointing out how. Uh, in a way, they have an agreement on the sense that Nietzsche would also say that if you want, for example, a person to be different, um, you must want the entire the entirety of the world and all the events of world history to be different, right? Because that person, yeah. every single thing that went into them is necessary, and if you take out some aspect of them because you have some moral idea of how they should be, um, you're sort of denying the necessity that produced them and of who and what they are, right? And that I guess you could say Christianity is part of who and what we are. And yeah. the idea, the vulgar atheism of people like Sam Harris um, is just the idea that you can sort of like, um, I mean, ironically, I could quote the Bible, right? If thine eye offends thee, pluck it out. That uh, if our, our Christianity offends us, we can just pluck it out and it'll just be gone and we'll move on to like a more peaceful, like rational society or whatever. Yeah. Um, which is very, very silly for a number of reasons. But I do think there's sort of this lingering problem, though, that Nietzsche brings up insofar as he sees Christianity as having this like nihilistic element to it that's built in and that is sort of like self-undermining in a way. Um, and a lot of it has to do with all the value in existence kind of flows off into this world beyond where, um, you know, going harkening all the way back to Plato, we've had in the West this distinction between appearance and essence. And that Christianity is the manifestation of this in religious terms in the West, in terms of the fact that, you know, God is the only, um, you know, like what's Parmenides' uh, test for what actually is? He's like, well, it, it, you know, what actually is isn't what will be or what was, it's what truly is, right? And so God, by being here yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and being the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, is sort of like, um, you know, the... We, we sort of turn our eyes to this horizon where there's this like permanence of being that exists in the afterlife. And that um, Nietzsche's big criticism of that is that it has a devaluing effect on how we look at the physical world. And it's had a devaluing effect on things like, um, you know, uh, you know so, so what we were talking about earlier, like the value of maintaining your fitness and your health and the beauty of the body, right? Like a lot of the Catholic saints and ascetics of, you know, the Middle Ages, you look at them and they're like, skinny like right down to their crazy bones with their like what these wide-eyed expressions and kind of like crazy hair sometimes and um like they look like they've got the thousand yard stare like they've been doing some serious contemplative prayer and they've seen some shit um and you it's interesting to compare that to like eastern saints like buddhist saints because they always look like serene and like sleek and they have like a subtlest of smiles there was actually a i think he was a british guy thomas merton um who was like a Catholic priest, I want to say, who convert like left the faith and converted to Buddhism, and that was like one of the things he talked about is like look at how much more serene their iconography is, and how ours like focuses on like basically this figure who died horribly, yeah, and uh, it's like this this it's still image of agony, and that that's what life is. You know, this is the world. There's a passage where Nietzsche says Christianity did a lot of damage um, to just our outlook on life when they classify this world as the place where the just man is tortured to death. Um, yeah. And so <laughs> I think, I think uh, Nietzsche really his concern isn't with 
like the Sam Harris, like we're just going to pluck it out. Right. It's, I think he sees just in the same way that like the Greek and Roman values got revaluated. Right. And Jung talks about this, how there's like a strange parallel with Nietzsche's God is dead thing, or it might even be like a reference. Although I don't know if Nietzsche ever explicitly talks about this story, but Jung definitely saw it. Um, that there's sort of a parallel to like right around the time when uh, it was allegedly the birth of Christ, there's like this kind of story in the Greek, or I think it was even a Roman myth of this sailor named Themis who hears um, like these chanters, these cultists on this Island. He's like a sailor out on the sea. And when he gets in a port, he tells this crazy story about how he heard these like pagan chanters, like wailing the great pan is dead or like the greatest God pan has died. And that, yeah, so yeah, coinciding yeah, yeah, yeah. like synchronously, like with the birth of Jesus, like Pan, the the pagan image of like the all, right? Which is like Pan etymologically. That's where we get that root word for pandemic or pansexual or whatever the hell, you know. Um, you know, the god of all nature and all its like terror and beauty. That thing has died. We now see the universe in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um. I definitely see on the other side what Jung was saying would even apply there, right? Because it's not like we just then chucked out the pagans, like the the scholastic tradition in Europe preserved the teachings of Aristotle, for example, for hundreds, thousands of years, really, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think like I could definitely see that role of Christianity going forward, but I think there's still like there's a way in which we can't have both ways, right? We're like either Jung's right where we're going to have to like still identify with Christianity culturally or Nietzsche's right where it's like, no, that really has died in the same way that pan died where we might still respect it, but we can't actually go back to it. Right. That the inherent nihilism of Christianity, like in the face of science and in the face of like all the developments that have happened in like the past 500 years of the enlightenment, it's going to kind of like wither away in the face of that. And we have to find something new. It's like an imperative for him. So I don't know, like how you would, what, what would you would think of oh, that man. kind of angle? Oh man, I love I love this talk. I think I actually think this is one of the most important conversations to have. And I don't see anybody talking about it. You know, I see Peterson mainstream in this stuff, and he he doesn't touch this. And he is a very like it's it's very like I oh man, I don't want to call him intellectually dishonest, but it sort of is. When he talks about Nietzsche, he turns around and he says stuff like, uh, "Oh." Nietzsche said that we should create our own values and become the Ubermensch, but Jung said that you can't create your own values. So that's 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 basically the full stop on that. Anyway, back to the Bible, and you're like, wait a sec, like when I was younger, I was uh, that always it always made my noggins itch, and I respected Jordan a lot, and I still do like him. But I would always sort of like scratch. I was like, you little rascal, you Canadian little rascal, you're not saying the whole story here at all. So first of all, um, this is the criticisms against Jung. Jung says that he says oh you can't create your own values but Nietzsche doesn't really say that he uses constantly the idea of we should reevaluate our values he does suggest stuff like we can create our own values and then we're starting to get into the semantics of what is a word but Nietzsche's stress always was the transvaluation of all values to reevaluate and then decide what is the right set of values that we should use going forward now this starts to give an insight into who Nietzsche was and why I think he's probably going to be like correct is even a strong word for this but he's a representative of a much more important part of our spirit Nietzsche was ballsy Nietzsche was brave Nietzsche was able to look and say 
Like, all right, I'm going to decide. And Jung was not decisive. Jung was very sort of mystical and he was very like wrapped up in the fate and destiny. And it even comes out in his arguments. He sort of says that like all these titanic forces were sloshing around at the time and you kind of have to surrender to these forces. It's like sort of what I was saying there earlier, you know, like we've got all these forces that define America. We should just give in to them and say that we're fatalistic and we can't control them and we should let them express to us what we should be. And again, there's, there's, there's a lot of reasons to be wise about that and I think Jung should be listened to because there's something very powerful about our unconscious creative processes I don't want to get too caught up too much of a tangent here but he's actually a great student of artists and he would often talk about how you know when you dream your dreams manifest logical ideas and they present themselves to you and you don't create them something else inside of you articulates information to you that is not your control and oftentimes it's, it's it's even more intelligent than you are and is able to tell you things you don't know and so Jung is like throughout his whole life Jung is honorable to that aspect of man which we would call what creates the dream you might call it God you could call it the unconscious but the point being is that it has intelligence and you you must you know you must bind yourself to this and this is sort of what he means all these unconscious collective forces we must be diligent to them and Nietzsche is this like radical crazy bastard who's basically saying we should just step on top of this stuff and assume our reality on top of this and believe in our position and our and our, all this type of stuff and so he Nietzsche has that bombastic assertive um, rational very 19th century rational energy where he's like let's fucking put our best foot forward let's decide let's judge let's rationally critique morals and point in what direction we want to go let's us say what we want and assert it forward Jung is just pessimistic and believes that we can't do that with without completely fucking ourselves up. Nietzsche has a very similar energy in some ways. Now, this is a very big reduction of his spirit, but in some ways he has that similar energy to the likes of like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, where it's like, oh, well, you know, let's just decide to not be irrational and not be Christian and not be not be prejudiced towards people anymore, you know? Let's become evolutionarists. And this is, you know, this is that type of energy, but Nietzsche's obviously doing it with this deep mythic consciousness. Nietzsche is as genius as Jung, if not even a little bit tilting further. And so Nietzsche has that balls. Nietzsche is able to just turn around and be like, I want, I want to critique all of, I want to look at all the culture and decide for myself what it means. I trust my gut and my spirit to uh, embrace this. In fact, Nietzsche in some sense is saying stuff like, if we look at Western culture, we will realize that we have always followed a little bit of a master morality and Christianity has only been a dress that we have thrown on top of all this stuff. And in some <laughs> sense, Nietzsche is just articulating what we already are in many ways. And he describes um, a lot of these ideas. And so that's a far more complicated um, question that I, I find Jordan Peterson brushes over an awful lot. Jung doesn't argue the point. Jung criticizes Nietzsche of not being, um, of being too rational, of, of, of trying to decide for himself. He never articulates that Nietzsche was, was like having, as I said, the balls to just put his best foot, best foot forward and assert. Nietzsche was trying to be a leader. Jung is, is trying to say, you can't be a leader. Nobody can be a leader. And this is an awful lot more disempowering. This is not really like us in the West. We, the, in the West, we're like, I'm shooting a fucking lump of metal into space. And it's like, well, I'm going to, I'm making a nuke. It's like, what if something goes wrong if you make the nuke? I don't care. I'm making the nuke. We'll figure it out after we make it. And in fairness to us, we haven't blown up the world yet or anything like that. And so I think, I think Jung and I think Jordan Peterson get this wrong. And they don't understand. Oh, that's a very silly thing to say, but they don't, they don't. I don't think they respect the Western, um, the rest Western spirit enough. As a consequence, Jordan Peterson especially. Yeah. Oh, 
yes. Yeah, Faustian, Promethean, like Nietzsche, I guess, is sort of saying it as Dionysian. Um, maybe maybe that's actually not the correct way to say it. But you, you know what I mean. Like the, the thing that chooses Elon Musk, the thing that like embraces that type of stuff. That's that's crazy. That's like I'm shooting a rocket into space. In 100 years, that has taken us to the moon. Like that is a really crazy part of ourselves. It's really dangerous. It causes us a lot of problems. But fundamentally, that's what, like, we are Prometheus saying, I don't mind if Zeus picks my liver out for the rest of time. I'm, I'm stealing the fire. The fire is getting taken. And Nietzsche has this amazing passage in one of his old books where he talks about the difference between the, the Aryan and the Semitic spirit. So this might be better understood as like the Indo-European and the, the old, like the biblical, the Hebrew spirit. Because if you look at the origin stories of evil in both of these traditions, we have the Greek, which is representative of the Indo-Europeans here. We have the Greek um, origin story of Prometheus. What happens is Prometheus goes and steals the fire from the gods in an active sense. He chooses to go and create problems by stealing the fire to empower man. And then that causes evil to get entered into the world through this basic process. Now look at the Semitic myth. Look at the myth of the Bible. This myth is of Eve passively walking through the Garden of Eden and then evil, evil comes up and whispers to her. This is the story of, of a woman experiencing sexual temptation, for example. And it's very passive. It's, it's passive in all the ways that a woman's experience it is. She doesn't go and decide. She doesn't assert. Instead, she is tricked. She is tempted. She is seduced. And then evil enters the world through her mistake. And these are huge differences because what you see is that evil is some sort of like outside thing in the Semitic tradition and the correct way to fight against evil is to obey is to sit down and say that you're not smarter you're not good enough you're not able to do this type of stuff you should just you know tuck, tuck your willy between your legs and sit down in the pew and be quiet and follow morality and which is fair enough that's wise for a lot of people to hear that stuff and you hear that energy inside like Jordan Peterson and even a little bit in Jung but instead Nietzsche is pointing out in the Promethean myth coming from the Indo-European people which is half of our spirit we're also like you know, we were influenced by the Semitic, so we're blend of the two things. But in the in the Indo-European spirit, there's this um there's this bombast. It's like, I know that this is going to cause evil. This I and I'm going to do it anyway. And I'm going to tempt evil. Actually, I'm going to take evil as a punishment for creating progress. And I'm, that's that's a way that I choose. I choose to embrace. And that's the Promethean spirit. And that's like People, like, I just don't hear people talk about that enough because that's what we are. That's what separates us from all the other cultures all across the world. There's plenty of religious cultures in the, in the world. There's plenty of Christ, like, Christian cultures. There's lots of them in the world. And the, Islam is very religious and diligent. Even the Chinese, somewhat atheist, they're very sort of pro-social and religious, but nobody has what we have. And if you talk to anybody outside the West and ask them how they see America, see us, because America is basically our representative on Earth right now, they all say to us, it's like, oh, when you were shooting rockets into space, oh, when you were creating with science, they don't talk to us about Christianity. They say, we, you should go back to Christianity to stop the woke problem, because the woke problem's stopping you from shooting rockets into space. But what you what you impressed us with, what made us see you as these incredible people, was the power, the magic that you had to reach for the stars. That's what you were. And that's a big deal. And I think Nietzsche captures that, and Jung simply doesn't. I don't think he captures it enough. And I, I, would, I would argue that's the reason why Nietzsche has a better position on that one, and Jordan Peterson the same. Yeah, I, because you have the masculine sort of identification with Prometheus, and then you have the feminine with Eve as well. I think that sort of brings out yeah. one of the ways I've interpreted the genealogy of morality, where it's truly a genealogy that we have this like masculine line of descendants in our culture and the feminine line of descendants, and they're both within our heart. And Nietzsche says the modern person he's seen both the master and slave morality expressed even in equal measure in the same soul. And um, 
it sort of reminds of like what like Alexander Solzhenitsyn's like the line between good and evil runs through every heart, right? Um, and who would want to uh, excise a piece of his own heart, right? Um, so you can't really cut out either one of them. But I think you're correct that that's part of Nietzsche's project is getting people to recognize the Dionysian or the Promethean or whatever we want to call it. Um, because mm-hmm. in, in a lar- large sense, we've been sort of brought up to see that that isn't there. But since we've been, been kind of criticizing Jung and, uh, by extension, Peterson, maybe um, we'll get into that a little bit, but for, uh, to the Jordan Peterson question, but um, I, w- I would maybe ask you um, just to counterbalance like the ways we've been critical of Jung. Um, if there's like one concept from Carl Jung or maybe a couple handful of ideas if you have to, um, that you think would be really helpful for you know the modern person who's trying to navigate and you know make something of themselves and come up in the world. Um, what's one that they should know, or maybe an underrated concept of Jung? Well, um, I, look, like, first of all, like I am a big fan of Jung, and I think Jung is absolutely brilliant, and he actually brings an awful lot to this conversation because even the way that you were talking there about like we have this masculine force inside of our culture and a feminine force, like a Hegelian dialectic, Jung is all about that. Jung always talks about Hegelian dialectics and his big. Th- thesis you've heard of this idea of shadow work before so his basic idea is that if you have a strong side of the hegelian dialectic active in your soul you know you're leaning one side we'll say say you're leaning very towards the christian semitic feminine perspective like jordan peterson's weirdly the shadow of that which is the brave science which he is raging against in like saying that they're all woke and they're all sam harris's that's actually weirdly the answer the balance to the, the energy that he's pointing out. And of course, we in the West went through the Promethean scientific phase. And now what we're seeing is that the Christian control of morality and the Christian assertion of moral standards is actually going to be the thing that shoots ourselves in the foot because we let go of that. We dismiss that. And now our morality is falling apart. And we're all like sticking dildos in our ears and stuff like this. And it's like, wait a second, <laughs> we're not going to go to Mars if we're busy, busy like dyeing our hair the wrong color and stuff like this. And so this becomes a countervailing force. And you see a Hegelian dialectic play out there. And this would... What Jung would describe as like a, an um, active forces within the unconscious of Western man warring. And in order for us to blaze our way forward, what you need to do is become conscious of these forces and integrate them and then actually um, put a, a, an intelligent pass forward. So in some sense, Jung is the answer to this problem between Nietzsche and Jung. But the true answer is not to listen to Jung either. Like it's, it's to learn the side that he's coming from, learn the side that Nietzsche's coming from, see their strengths, see their weaknesses, blend them together and ultimately aim to win because that's what we're here to do i'd imagine yeah and um, in terms of what young do then like young young is incredibly valuable across the board for many of his theories he is um like i've talked about them a lot it will get a little bit too off topic if i talk about him like i, I think i gave him a good um a voice earlier on about the positive is what he says yeah. but um these these types of psychological in- insights where he's talking about this mechanism inside of ourselves he is full of these he's very valuable for a lot of these and of course you have to just always go in with the the intention of being pragmatic with it and breaking it a little bit outside of Jungianism because again he's a bit mystic he's a bit mythical he gets lost in that type of stuff a little bit he, he shoots himself in his own foot but there's definitely value to be found there yeah well I I actually I love the mystical side of young as well because it's um it's uh, it's like an adventure um especially True, psychology yeah. and alchemy is a very hard book but anyone who hasn't read young before yeah. i'm i always tell them to pick that up just go slow and look up words you don't know uh and it will blow your mind <laughs> completely yeah. um yeah so maybe uh, we could get into talking about uh jordan peterson a little bit and maybe i'll just give 
kind of my backstory with Jordan Peterson, which I've, I've talked about a little bit, but maybe not fully. So when I first encountered Jordan Peterson, it was in 2016. It might serve as sort of an explanation because I know there are people out there where they'll, they're kind of mystified at why so many people like Jordan Peterson or were, were really inspired by him. But I think in sort of how I encountered him, um, it kind of, maybe I could offer an explanation as to why that is. So it was 2016 and uh, I was on the Nietzsche subreddit kind of bumming around um, and I found this uh, video of Jordan Peterson talking for 45 minutes about a single paragraph from Beyond Good and Evil. And it's like yeah. <laughs> uh, prior to any production value, it's kind of amazing, actually. I'm just now kind of reflecting on this now that he's with, uh, um, who's he, with Daily Wire or some, something, um, where he's got this huge budget. And that video of him just talking about Beyond Good and Evil, it has horrible audio quality. Like you have to turn your, you know, your volume all the way up and you can barely hear it. And it's just him uh, sitting in his office and just talking off the cuff. And I remember at the time I had gotten, I had been exposed to Nietzsche for a while, but like you were talking about, you know, you pick it up and you're like, this is really cool. I didn't really understand a whole lot of it. And it was really in like 2014 or so it started to really click with me. And I remember I had just finished reading beyond good and evil, like a second time where it really, that was like probably the first time where it actually made some sense. And I was looking for any kind of commentary on it. And most of what I found was really bad. And then I see somebody post this and it's like, wow, this guy actually gets it. And I yeah. recommend that to, to anyone still today. In retrospect, there are some ways that I disagree with some of the things he says now, but you know, whatever, every, everybody has their own interpretation and there's some level to which you can't expect to find total agreement with anybody. Um, but, and from there, I then find his YouTube channel. It's like, oh, wow, this guy's a professor and he's got years and years of lectures that are just free uh, to watch. And it was that year, though, later, I forget exactly what month, like sometime in the fall, when he puts up a video, I see this video go up in his YouTube channel that's called Professor Against Political Correctness. And I was like, oh, no, what is this? This guy's about to get canceled because leading up to that time, like 2013, 2014, 2015, that was where you saw like professor after professor. It, it was a really like recurring thing to happen um, where you would see speakers getting shut down or deplatformed. And a lot of professors would like say something that was sort of, you know, slightly coloring outside of the lines of what you're supposed to say politically to be politically correct. And they almost all got crushed or they would in, end up apologizing. And so I saw that happen. And then, you know, he went and did a free speech event and people were peppering him with questions, but he like held his own and actually mm -hmm. debated them and looked, came out looking really good. And then he did like a public access thing in Canada. He ended up looking great in that too. Um, the other people looked really unreasonable. And he, again, he was like, I'm not going to apologize. I'm going to stick to my guns. And so to see that happen at the time was just so extraordinary because so many people had just backed down and it was like, wow, this guy's actually tenured. He can't get fired. Um, you know, uh, now I think he was actually, I don't know if he was forced out, but I, I get the impression that the environment at the university had just become too hostile to him. Um, or it was just too much to deal with. I, I don't know. I don't know if he's ever like been totally upfront about why he like stopped teaching. Um, but it, it turns out even if you have tenure, <laughs> 
if if you get harassed enough or if there's just enough general vitriol towards you, you can still kind of, you know, not be welcome somewhere. But in any case, um, that was sort of my exposure to him. And looking at the message that he had, like he's got a great lecture called Reality in the Sacred, um, where he's basically talking to a Western audience, getting them to snap out of this like sort of like materialistic mindset, both in the philosophical sense mm -hmm. and also in sort of like the spiritual sense of materialism, right? Of thinking that your life, the utilitarian attitude we've been talking about, like, oh, my life, the, oh, the world is just made up of objects and I am just here to satisfy my material needs and then one day I die. And he was basically like bringing them into this mythic, um, you know, this more meaningful worldview, right? To use his own language. Um, and that was quite amazing. Um, and it wasn't until much, much later when I started to maybe have like a bit of an issue. I don't even necessarily want to put it like that. Um, more of an issue with his followers, actually, because I would see people like really uncritically, mainly repeat a lot of what Jordan says about Nietzsche. <laughs> And like yeah. even use the same phraseology and stuff, right? Because I had listened to so much. I had listened to enough of what he said. So, you know, you recognize it when you see somebody type, the death of God was by no means triumphant. You're like, that's exactly the way Jordan Peterson speaks. <laughs> like, uh, have you actually read the book? You know, like, and, and that's the thing. It's not like Jordan was going around telling people, like, he was saying quite the opposite. He was saying, you need to read this stuff and get educated. Um, I have done the reading, you know, and like you, there's a lot that you have to take in in the Western canon to really understand like where we're at and where, you know, all of these these big things. And if you want to have an opinion on it, you have to do the reading. And I wish like more of his followers had followed through on that. Um, I don't know. So I've been talking for him a long time. So maybe I, if you have your own like story of how you first got into Jordan Peterson or any reaction or whatever. <laughs> Oh, it's good. It's good. Your story is literally like, you know, word for word, like me, we, we definitely have to look at backstories because we've, we've lived some type of, you know, uh, similar hero's journey, as they say. I think that was Jung's point, wasn't it? That we have a very, very archetypal matching stories often and you'd be amazed how much they match because I was the exact same. Like I remember um, JBP shows up in about 2017 is when I came across him. And I was, uh, you know, well read and well read on Nietzsche. I like barely understood a lot of this stuff, but I was reading Nietzsche and Jung. And I was this, you know, like nobody was reading that stuff. I had one friend who was into Jung and didn't really care about Nietzsche that much. And I was like, Nietzsche and Jung were my bros, you know, and it's, I loved them. And I was, I love this kind of like high energy of the, the great, um, the great like prestigious West. I, there's something really com compelling about this. And I absolutely loved it. And again, my experience in college, as I articulated earlier, they, they were like constantly criticizing it, saying this Western canon thing is evil. And I remember just not liking the way they're going about it, the way that they're talking, but I never understood why I was far too young. I just had this like instinctive rejection of it. And I, you know, went to my different path. Jordan Peterson shows up and he's like, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's complicated, but God is dead. And I'm like, God is, that's a Nietzsche quote. And he's like, Nietzsche. And I'm like, oh my God, what? I'm like, do you know that meme where it's the the world the world wrestling guy and he just keeps on getting like a bigger, like he's, his face just getting more, uh, more uh, in, full of ecstasy every time, every time he hears the next step of the meme. I was basically like, <laughs> yeah, Nietzsche. Yeah. And I'm, uh, yeah, Vince McMahon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm here, Vince McMahon, Vince McMahon. I'm just basically like, you know, when he drops Carl Jung or the Red Book or something like this, I'm just pulling my fucking hair out and my head button the wall. I'm like, yes. So I was 
Absolutely. He against the established, basically the new atheists, you know, like that's that they were like, it's so funny to look at YouTube history and everything. They were a big deal about 12 years ago. Yeah. Like new. I, I was around for that, actually. I, Stop. the first channels that I, I didn't create any content, but the, all the first channels on YouTube that I watched was all atheists. It was like the amazing atheist. It was like uh, the atheist experience, yeah, yeah. Matt Dillahunty, those guys. Um, and oh, yeah. it's so like, it's such a circle jerk, right? Because it's not, it's like, um, you know, because they're all debating evangelicals and stuff. So it's like yes. shooting fish in a barrel, right? <laughs> But yeah, yeah, and you know, like this is to in fairness to Jordan Peter, in fairness to them, is like Jordan Peterson has kind of got to that point where he's doing the opposite now. It's like you know, you're debating atheists. It's like, bro, there's one big German incel atheist that you don't talk about <laughs> enough. Like he'll give you a run for your money. But yeah, that was it. They were all like the big deal, and and he came in and he just nuked them. He just destroyed them, and it was brilliant because Young is the is the greatest answer to that stuff because he's he's so suitable to the western soul like the western soul is very artistic and young speaks to that artistic spirit i like i ran my channel on young for ages and the amount of artists who would just like come into me and talk about young and young speaks to something very noble and creative and organic and raw inside of the western soul and it, new atheism just kills that kills a dead no and intellectualism in general kind of kills that and Jung's kind of mythic qualities to bring that back and so Jordan Peterson was sort of doing that he was re-entrancing people into the, the the mythic realities and helping people embrace religious realities and helping them understand a symbolism and evolutionary psychology and all this type of stuff and so I was loving it because I'm like I think that way I'm very imaginative very right-brained and um that was great and then of course he would sp like sprinkle in this stuff about Nietzsche I was, I was, you know, I kind of, I'd like bite my lip a bit. I was like, look, I like you, bro. But like, you know, all right, that's, you're not really talking about Nietzsche that much. And I was like, maybe next week, <laughs> maybe <laughs> next month, he'll, he'll drop the big Nietzsche podcast. It just never came. It never, never came. And so eventually I was kind of thinking to myself, I don't know about this. And then a lot of the people around his movement became very like a uh, Jungian or very Christian. And like, I understand why I, I try not to be some type of pompous fuck about this stuff, but you, you, I saw an awful lot of exactly what you're describing, like that sort of um, unthinking behavior, which is perfectly fine. People are trying to live their lives. They're going to follow along what they're going to follow along. But I knew, I knew when I was starting to hear it, it's like the way that Christianity was being talked about. I was like, this is just blunt denial, lads. Like our problem is not that the woke people have, you know, got started banging people over the head with dildos or something like this. It's like we're in a bad place because we've lost our sense of our like ability to do things ambitiously you know we don't believe in the west well how do you so how do you regard like where he's at these days um in terms of like jordan peterson's well, current career it's tough right he's lost his magic i think he's so lost too his magic it's very interesting yeah, he does. He just doesn't have what he had before. I have. I've not listened to a full video by him in over three years. I'd say, which is, and I don't mean that as a slight. Like I, I think it's sort of like you know Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. Like he was a very significant part of me and um, finding my feet and finding a sense of who I was. You know, he was very big deal for that, and he helped me kind of like stand up for the West and understand that I'm a member of the West, and and, and he helped me put together that part of my identity. But again, like he's standing on the shoulder of a giant. You kind of you, you get him and you digest what he's talking about, and. 
then you take the good and then you put it aside the bad. And there's plenty of things that I think are um, are not sufficient, as I've articulated one already, is the, the, the lack of articulating the Promethean stuff. I still think he's a very, very um, smart man, a very, very, like, I think he's sincere. And I think he's obviously just kind of trying to secure his bag and becoming a mainstream intellectual at this point, which is, you know, I get it. Like, you know, it's a big deal. He's, it's hard to be up there on the front end when you've got health problems at like 60 years of age doing all these type of things. Yeah. I just don't treat him as a hero. And to be perfectly honest, nobody else does anymore. It's not like he's Andrew Tate who possesses the spirit of the people and he's like counter-signaling Nietzsche or something like that. Like, it's just not like that. So Jordan Peterson has kind of taken his place. He... um He's not really relevant to the center of the conversation. He's just a bit of a, a fun meme daddy every now and again. He says some things that are annoying, some things that are fine. Like he was giving out about anonymous accounts and stuff like this. And you're like, you know, it's just a bad take, but like, you know, it's like, he's just a bloke now at this point. Yeah. And I think that's okay. That's, that's fine. Like I, I could give you, um, I could tell you like the, the, the real hard criticism of that just, I think nukes his entire position, which is um, if, if you want to say anything though, or if you'd like me to dive into that. Oh, I, I would just say it comes to mind uh, Zarathustra is saying like one repays a teacher badly if he remains a student only. Um, yeah. You kind of have to. Yeah. Like you absorb what he has to give you and then you have to move on. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'm interested in hearing it, hearing it, what, what the, the major criticism is. Absolutely, yeah. I think the... That's that's a perfect way to put it. Is like you know, if if you had a chance to talk to him, he'd definitely be very smart. I'd say if I presented any of these ideas to him, he'd be extremely interested, and he'd probably disagree, but I, he'd definitely listen. And that's because he's got he's got a good heart, and like like he's he's he is willing to wrestle with ideas. You know, it's just that his positions sit in a certain perspective. He's had certain life experiences to put in certain ways. In fact, he's surprisingly pessimistic. He reminds me of the saint in Zarathustra. You know, um, when Zarathustra yeah. comes down and the first character he meets is this jaded saint. That actually, uh, like when I was reading Zarathustra, I was like, fuck, that's, that's actually an awful lot like how I witnessed Jordan Peterson. There's this great pessimism about man's nature and our nature and our potential. And Zarathustra, of all things, is coming in and saying, yo, I'm white-pilled on man. I'm, pessim I'm, pos uh, I'm optimistic. Like, I think we figured that stuff out. But anyway, I think one of the, 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 the biggest challenges the young and this obviously as Nietzsche's talking about this reevaluation of values, and you've alluded to this already. Um the the reevaluation of values that took place in Rome with Christianity. Because I think if you were like a conservative Jordan Peterson fan um getting into Christianity again nowadays, you would consider yourself at war with the woke movement that is trying to subvert Western culture and pull it apart. Now if you if I could teleport that character to ancient Rome and put them there, they would be a Roman pagan fighting against Christianity because Christianity mm. is subverting Rome. And you think the amount of historical layers to this is insane. So first of all, one fact is Christianity spread in the cities. Why? Because what happened in Rome is that they, the Rome, Romans got rich, they conquered this massive empire, and they started to you know, do mass immigration, basically, and bring in all these slaves, completely against their will, bringing in all these slaves into conquered places and stuffing them into the cities to be like slaves, to work. And of course, then the cities lose their identity. The cities are all these, this, this hodgepodge of people from all across the empire. And there are these big, like, you know, sweltering Italian cities where all these people are like, I'm not, I don't respect Jupiter. Jupiter was my oppressor. Jupiter is the Christian colonist god. This is literally how they would have thought about this stuff. And then they turn around and they're like, that's, fuck this, like, I, I'm not a part of this. And then they have this story about 
um, this guy in Judea. It's like sort of like a Joy, George Floyd-like character. They have this story of this guy in Judea who was <laughs> unjustly murdered by these Roman tyrants, these Roman colonist oppressors. And of course, they can do as Nietzsche astoundingly accurately articulated, psych psychologically accurate, accurately. They can hold up an image of this Christ who was... Um, who was unjustly murdered, who was oppressed, who was, you know, uh, choked to death by the oppressors. And they can say, you, look what you've done. You're, you're evil. Look what you've done to us. You're, you're, you're hurting us. They start to instantiate that guilt consciousness because this is the only power that the slaves have against the masters. They can't use force because the masters are stronger. So it's like a woman and a man. The woman can't use her hands. So she must be able to try influence the man's mind. She must install inside of the man hesitation, guilty conscience. And this is what the, the slaves in Rome do to the masters. They, they instantiate this, this guilty conscience inside of them. And it's not like the slaves didn't try to fight them. In fact, right before Christianity was Spartacus, that very, very famous story. That was right around Julius Caesar's time. And that was a, a slave revolt. But obviously that didn't work. The Romans put them down unbelievably br brutally. And how did they put them down? They crucified them all. Because that was the Roman way of doing things. And so what eventually happens is the slaves start to get this uh, countervalent identity, this basically this woke identity. And so it comes from the Middle East. It comes from the Levant with this story. It identifies with everybody in the Mediterranean basin. Most of the people in the Mediterranean basin are not going to identify with fucking Jupiter because that's the colonist, as I said. And then it stays in the cities. Christianity was almost entirely a city-based movement up until it like obviously took over completely and do you know how we know this well obviously there's a lot of people who talk about it at the time Tellurian is one of the he came I guess where he comes from he comes from I think it's Algeria so he comes from North Africa so he's obviously like from that Mediterranean base and he gets on board with Christianity because it suits who he is he doesn't really identify with being a rogue Roman pagan or anything like this and he boasts about how the cities are full of Christians all the Christians are in the cities and guess what the word pagan means if you go to France there's this word called Pagani which basically means rustic country folk you know what pagani basically translates to a redneck a midwest a low information voter a flyover state that's what a pagan is pagan literally just means rustic you look in the old latin that's what the word is it means the country person so all the pagans would have been the right-wing conservatives out in the countryside in rome who would travel into the cities and they'd see blm marches flying around <laughs> with all these woke christians talking about how they want to have a utopia. They want to change the entire Roman state. They want to get rid of the oppressive Jupiter, get rid of the oppressive Romans, and they want to empower people. Christianity was not like, on top of it being in the cities, it was largely supported by women, by rich middle-class women. What are they? They're Karens. There was loads of those. <laughs> they all love Christianity. And then it was all the, the, the immigrants, all the people who brought in, who were, they were slaves. They weren't immigrants. Like that's obviously a modern term that I'm using in tongue in cheek. But this is, this is what this was. And the Roman pagan, the right, you know, he's wearing, the Roman pagan wearing his like a uh, MAGA hat, which is like his, you know, I love the emperor hat or something like this. He's walking in and he's seeing all this stuff going on. And he's like, oh my God, this is unbelievably blackpilling. We've lost our, our nation. We lost our country. And of course the Christians come in with all these beautiful stories like communism you know it comes in and says we're going to reform society like the french revolution like communism and it's going to be the most glorious thing ever we're going to reform society and everything's going to be perfect and it's going to be utopia for a thousand years and christianity told the exact same story and nietzsche points this out in genealogy of morality in a brilliant way they're so talking about how everyone's going to be in heaven and they're going to look down at the roman athletes the roman poets the roman pagans they're going to look down at all these ignorant rednecks and they're going to be burning they're going to be tortured in the gladiatory realm they're going to be having all these terrible experiences.
experiences and we're going to be looking down on them and laughing in our vengeance orgy at these 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 botched people that we've conquered and of course what happens is when christianity seizes power several several very scary things happen first of all what follows immediately famously is a dark age the romans went from having all their engineers and all their ability to organize aqueducts to people not being remember how to even repair them so they start to fall apart within rome converted to christianity with I guess you could say Rome converted in 380 AD. In 391, it banned the pagan gods and made them illegal to worship them. It shut down all the temples. It's like the way the churches are getting burned in Europe and stuff like this. It's the exact same thing. The temples are getting disrespected. Eventually, they're kind of cast out and ignored, like the way people have turned on Christianity. Um, in 391 AD, they banned the illegal, they, they make the, the things illegal. 19 years later, in 410, Rome is sacked by barbarians for the first time in 800 years. 19 years after they have their great revolution, Rome is now getting invaded by foreigners. Now it's, it's a load of fucking thuggish Germans running around, a load of like, you know, Nietzsche's ancestors running around, <laughs> spanking people and slapping people around and all this stuff. And this is, this is insane. Like that's the, that's the, the, the opposite of what happened. Because of course, this is what happens in the communist revolution. This is what happens in the French revolution. They don't go around, they don't make a utopia. They go around, they pull down statues, which is what happened in Rome. They burn books, which is what happened in Rome. They burn down libraries. They murder people, I'm sure, at some point. I don't know, is, is, I, I, don't, I can't slander that because I'm not sure if there's any evidence of that. But there's, there's this like revolution that happens that is a tear down of the old society and the resurrecting of something new. And the, the, the new thing on these beautiful ideas, these woke ideals, fails, absolutely. There's a collapse then that comes after 410 AD. Rome is never the same again, and they sink down into a permanent dark age where they completely lose the engineering capacities of Rome and we're stuck in this sort of like religious superstitio era for about a thousand years and it's only in the Renaissance does that wake up again. Now that re-evaluation of values is precisely what Nietzsche pointed out and if, if somebody like Jordan or Jung is to truly embrace with that they have to come up against the gravity of what we're talking about here. Christianity was came from these roots. That's its actual spirit. And that's a fascinating problem because I don't think Jung had a context to understand that. I think we do now. I think that's one of the, the best analogies we could ever describe of exactly what we're talking about here. And when you start to see all those things put together, you realize that at the very least, the true story of Christianity, the truth is not going to be able to suit Christianity. This is again, Nietzsche's critique. So the only way that we can maybe support Christianity in its absolute sense is by telling ourselves that it's a beautiful lie, like Plato would say, a magnificent myth, a noble lie. And it's like, wait a second, but then we're just lying about what it is. You know, we're using it for social control. And at that point, you're, you're, you're starting to trip over your own heels. You're not telling the truth about what it is. And of course, Christianity is premised on that same idea, the, the, the belief in God, yeah. and the belief in the truth. So, Yeah, it's interesting. So, yeah. There's a, uh, there was a essay by Curtis Yarvin back in the day. I don't know if you know who that is, Minchus Moldbug. Um, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. Uh, but where he says that... Um, like progressivism, wokeism, whatever the heck we want to call it, um, could be conceived of as what he calls like ultra Calvinism. Um, and what he means yeah. by that is basically there's all these tendencies that he sees in Protestantism. Um, and just to maybe make it as simple and straightforward as possible, that it's almost like the morality of the Christian religion, he basically sees it as this new leftist progressive you know, non-Christian Christianity, right? This new religion that's coming up has basically shed all of the supernatural and mythological aspects 
as a way of like making itself a more efficient like mind virus, right? That it's just yeah. just boils itself down just to the most like pitying, um, you know, uh, resentful, like all of those aspects, and even leaves behind you know the whole mythology and the redemption story because that's not as effective of a delivery system for like this this slave morality to put it in Nietzschean terms, which Yarvin doesn't say. Um, that's certainly an interesting idea. I think in terms of, um, yeah, I see that same problem where Jordan kind of wants to return to Christianity, but he doesn't see, or maybe he does. I, I think he might even perceive how in many ways, like the wokeness or whatever we want to call it, um, is like manifesting that same like religious need. Um, it's just that, yeah, as you describe it, um, it is like, I think that is kind of scary to think about for a lot of people that, um, maybe what Nietzsche was predicting in some sense is exactly the same tendency that we saw in Christianity. And that when it comes around again, it's going to bring you totally into that last man, like ideology, that last man way of life, because it's even gotten rid of, um, like you say, like the magnificent myths, the noble lies, the things that give our life meaning about it just and it's almost embraced like to bring the conversation back around to the beginning pure utility right um making a which is kind of what you could say about the bolsheviks right making a physical utopia on earth instead of like the hegelian dialectic of like you know because hegel ultimately um you know the the communists often forget this but hegel's ultimate revelation at the end of his dialectic is like god on earth right it, it, it is jesus and yeah. so for Marx to like take that and make it dialectical materialism is actually a really crazy idea in a lot of ways because it's like creating heaven on earth. Um, and so it seems like that's what we're going towards. And that's what, what's so amazing about Nietzsche is his willingness to paradoxically tell the truth that we need lies or that we need. Uh, and that's kind of been one of my other contentions with Jordan's interpretation is that um He'll he'll talk about how Nietzsche says that truth serves serves life, but there's sort of another dark side to that where Nietzsche also says that lies serve life, right? That like you know the Greek morality prior to Socrates, prior to this like ugly beggar who came around and questioned everyone and exposed how nobody had any reason for what they believed, like was a sign of how their society was about to collapse and no longer believed in itself, <laughs> right? And there, there's some degree to which, like, when your values are unquestionable, when they're just sort of mythologically accepted, even when you might say faithfully or, like, irrationally accepted, like, those are the values you, like, really believe in, where they're beyond question is kind of maybe the way to put it. Where, And, and you could even say, like, it doesn't have to have a lie, right? Like, if you talk to any parent, um, they love their kid beyond question. And it's just not the kind of thing you can even subject to a rational analysis, like, what would be the cost benefit analysis of, you know, like your kid dying or not? It's like they, they can't even do that calculation because like the love they have like transcends any kind of rational like calculation about that kind of thing. Right. And so our cultural societal values or sacred values, whatever we want to call them, I, I feel like they used to one way you could think of it. They used to be of that unquestionable nature and now they've become questionable. So even if they're not like refuted, so to speak, just bringing them before interrogation, which if you notice, that's what in critical theory, that's what they always want to do is interrogate things that auto, that already demystifies it, that already makes it um, basically unable to be that myth. 
right? I think this is actually quite important to try to bring it full circle. Um, Yarvin's actually a very interesting person to bring up because um, I, I don't think Yarvin is... I, I, I like Yarvin, but I don't think he's correct or savvy in the way that he shapes his articulation because he basically says, like, wokeism is a manifestation of Protestantism. And he makes it very intellectual to suit people who like this genealogy of ideas. Like what happens is there was this set of ideas in Protestant America and they were like swirling around in people's heads and they evolved and they became woke and it became more like, you know, Machiavellian, more intense and all this type of stuff. And it's, it's like a, an idea, a, a man who thinks in terms of ideas the way he'd like to think about how the world works. Now, in, um, Nietzsche is an awful lot different. He's like basically flips the whole story in its head. And he basically says like a, a, a resentful person, you know, uh, you could cate he'd categorize, uh, categorize it as the slave. The slave will develop a certain type of idea. Now, you can give a slave Christianity and he will make it all about turning the other cheek and being weak and hating Caesar and hating the masters. Now, you could give a healthy, strong German charging in from the north to conquer Rome. You could give him Christianity and he'd be like, there's a soldier, there's a champion, there's a warrior who was re refused to die like a coward. There's a man who took his death on the face. And what you see, you give that to a conquistador and they'll, they'll be like, all right, all those Aztecs need some Christianity. We need to go over there and enforce Christianity upon them. So depending on the energy inside the person, it will dictate how the ideas are manifest and how the, uh, the ideas are expressed. Yarvin makes it sort of ideological, whereas Nietzsche, which I believe is correct, is pointing out to the, the, the physiological, I guess, is the, what he often describes, the, the state of the soul. And this is what I think is so frightening about Christianity and about that um, critique he has of it is that he basically points out in a shocking way that the, the state of the soul that is exant in the West right now with the woke movement, you know, is a load of sick people, I guess is the way you could say it. And I don't mean that like slander. I mean that as like they're actually mal, mal like they're, they're diseased, you know, they're, they're in pain, they're suffering, they're, they're getting poisoned for a variety of different reasons. And I can get into that maybe later and talk about this type of stuff. And what you see in Christianity is the same people, the same states of soul. Christianity was just the, the ideological garb that they used to represent this. Nietzsche, again, deepens that critique and says that Christianity is designed to make the people who start to believe in that ideology sick. So it actually is even worse because it gradually transforms the people into the state of soul that creates Christianity. It's like a virus, exactly as you'd expect it. This is a very scary thing. And it's not that the ideology is leading. It's that the state of soul creates the ideology, which then, you know, reinforces like a zombie that transforms people back into itself. It's absolutely crazy when you think about this. And so Nietzsche's right, it's like we're, telling he said the story. The, uh, the Teutonic men who like inherited Christianity were totally different from the slaves who created it. And so they, they were outwardly violent and Christianity over time transforms them into people who turn the violence inward. Um, yep. So yeah, it's just this interjection there. Well, it's just, that's such a, like, a brilliant observation by him because it's not sort of what you get with the Germans. Like if you speak to Germans now, they're very like in their heads, you know, they're very, they've obviously still got that kind of groggishness in them, <laughs> but they've, um, they've got that like very, uh, like, you know, front brained way of thinking. And this, ma this makes them brilliant in many ways. As Nietzsche said, it actually disciplines the mind, but it makes them, 
they're, they're very, they're, you know, you, you read Hegel and that's like the, the German spirit in its worst. That's the, the Christianized German who's sitting there and he's just like exploding this harassment of, of concepts on, on the page and all this. And like I show up <laughs> now point and now he's a shit, shit writer and all this. And it's like, that's actually sort of what one side of it that you see happening is that it's, it, it's disciplining the, the old, like that guy, 2000 years ago would have been chasing after a boar and he might have been like a super athlete and he made all these crazy spears and he was like very advanced in his organization and technology and all this type of stuff for his age, you know, these types of things. That's what the Germans were back then. But they have, um, they sort of lose that. They, they, they turn into something else, which is the kind of stuck in the head character. So exactly like what, what you see and what, what is pointed out, that it has an effect on the soul. And Nietzsche's great worry is that, you know, the woke movement is a manifestation of this this type of spirit conquering the other types of spirit he would call it the masters this type of thing and what is developing then is this instinct of resentment that was that what did it do in rome it went in and it tore down the statues of caesar it tore down the grand hellenic religion it tore down the, the historical stories like we i think i think we only've got like you know, we, people uh, speculate that we're missing like 60% of the knowledge that was in Rome, maybe even more. If it was only for the Muslims to save it, like we would have lost almost all of it. And this is crazy when you think about it, is that there was all that great stuff and it was all just spat out and destroyed and, and people couldn't take care of it anymore for a variety of different reasons. There's this blunt resentment. You see, for example, the, the movements nowadays, they're pulling down statues. They're talking about banning books from the past. They're talking about rewriting Nietzsche. They're saying that like Nietzsche has problematic passages in it where he talks about the blonde beast and stuff like this. And they're like, well, we gotta, we gotta edit that out because that's not good. Look at what they're doing with films. They're making old versions of films, but they're you know casting it in, ways that suit the ideology and stuff it's actually fascinating to see that because that's that same sort of resentment of pulling down what was old and great and and re-establishing something new have you heard and of going along with oh, sorry have you heard of uh, mao's wife jang ching who uh she took all the old chinese operas i have not well uh she took all the old chinese well, operas and she remade them as like revolutionary plays um, there you go. Like, and like yeah, right before the, the cultural revolution, basically all the college students who would go out and like, you know, drag the teacher out of the school and like beat them publicly and make them, you know, the struggle sessions, right? You've, I'm sure you've heard of the, that in communist yeah. China. Uh, basically, they would go watch Jiang Qing's revolutionary plays and get amped up. And then they would go out and do the yep, struggle sessions. Go. See, this is it, you know, and it's it's like the the feeling the revolutionary feeling of the like the anarchist who gets to pull down destroy something this expression of violence actually you know what's so fascinating it's the thing that they accuse the master of julius caesar gets to express his violent violent instincts upon gaul and and put it under his foot it's like they want to feel that too but they can't with good conscience tell the truth about what they actually want to feel because they're not strong enough to do it and so what they do is they need to come up with a pretty story about how they're doing it for the revolution, you know, for equality. And then they get to express that and not like a big, strong Gallic warrior. No, instead they get to find some middle-class fucking bumfuck teacher. And right. Skin off in public and then boil them alive, you know? It's like, Jesus Christ. Man, reading about the Bolsheviks, like, it, it's, and, and the Mao and stuff, and even the reign of terror in France. And you see, you see this face. It's like pulling off a mask and seeing like a ring corpse and see what you see what the energy actually is like um oh man yeah look i don't want to get into the graphic stories but you know they, they just did brutal things it's just like blood 
murder, butchery. It's it's just once they get the ability to do that stuff, Jordan Peterson talks about it, you know, they get the ability to get the kulak. They charge from the pub and they go and get the kulak and they basically like hang him out in his own barnyard and then rape his daughter in front of him while he's choking out. It's like, this is the energy that's inside of him, that type of thing. And that is resentment of the high, resentment of the great, resentment of what is strong and what is powerful. And so what I find so interesting about Nietzsche and such a challenge to that whole perspective is like, if Christianity came from that spirit, what was the alternate spirit? And if we're going to establish our identity as, oh, we need Christianity to stabilize what's going on, that's that's a reactionary perspective. What's Yarvin a neo-reactionary? This is Jordan Peterson, there's a reactionary. Many people were reacting to this woke energy. So it's like, all right, we need to react to this and come up with a, an alternate perspective to this, where it's like Nietzsche did not react. Nietzsche called this stuff on first principle 100 years before it happened. And he asserted that there's a different way that you can orientate yourself. And I think this is really important because this is a very simple way you can think about Nietzsche. Nietzsche is, at the very least, trying to articulate a moral worldview that is aligned with life. It's basically Heraclitus' idea of the logos not being the abstract word, but the logos being aligned with the sort of eternal conflicting fire at the center of nature, which basically leads to affirming the law of simply the jungle, I guess you could say, and understanding the nobility in this and talking about natural forms. And you actually see, I think this is so fascinating, when you look out into the world as it is now with the woke movement and all that, you actually see that, yes, there's this antichrist Christian energy, there's this atheist religious energy, there's this anti-West energy, but act actually at the root of it, there's this pro-life and there's anti-life perspective. We've got people who are going out and they're trying to categori categorically rebel against life. That's fundamentally what's happening. As Nietzsche said, they're denying life. And this seems to be the, the absolute root of it. They want to cut off their, their genitals because they believe that they are gnostically the wrong, in the wrong body. So they're at war with nature, they're at war with the body. They want to get rid, like, get rid of family systems and all this type of stuff because they're at war with the body. They want, to, um, get, they want to hate the West. It's very natural for life to believe in itself, to believe in its creative power, to believe in its future. They want to turn that self-interest into self-shame, to self-guilt. They don't want to have those types of, that type of confidence. These very simple and elegant things. They don't want to see you being creative. They don't want to see themselves being creative. They want to see suicide. Look at it um, allegorically in, in Canada they're setting up euthanasia camps and stuff mm. like this euthanasia camps that's strong language they're, they're setting up euthanasia programs and stuff like this they're being and very uh, this... very generous with their offers to provide euthanasia <laughs> as a service <laughs> Yes, exactly. You know, you know, they're they're uh, they're encouraging this anti-life choice as opposed to promoting life, if you would say. All of the education institutions are are, are putting inside people's heads this anti-nature stuff. Look at the gender wars. You know, feminism versus all the guys that are going against it. But you see, there a, a war that's sterilizing both genders. Women are getting encouraged to embrace a mythology that means that they don't re really end up making children and they don't fulfill their one of their biological instincts. And then men are the exact same. Men are running around now. And they're sort of like, well, look, I can't participate in the world, so I may as well just go like slay puss until I'm like 57 or something like this. And it's like there's this war against nature. Now, I'm not trying to turn and say that this is going to solve everything and this is morality we can all attach to. But you can see that the entire position is at war with life, at war with nature, at war with all the things that come with this mainly self-belief, self-interest, creativity, and success. Creativity, a, a very important one. Success, a very important one, because that's ultimately what life strives towards. And Nietzsche's 
entire view is not like a critique of Christianity, not a reaction against woke, none of these type of things. Nietzsche's entire view was to always try to build on first principle, the, the attitude of life and try to embrace that as much as possible and, and help align with life so that life can fulfill its goals through us, basically. Yeah. And that was always his stance. And it, it, it forms such a comprehensive answer to the diseased, woke perspective, but also many other manifestations of it, and maybe even the dangers hidden in Christianity. Because if people go back to Christianity, but they continue with like, maybe, you know, they'll say stuff like the West is still colonialist. We're all Christian now, but the West is still colonial. We're, we're in the same situation, but with just a new religious movement to deal with. Whereas this perspective puts you back standing on, you could say the strong morality or the life morality or the life affirming morality, which actually, gives us that ability to embrace success, embrace the things we need to embrace, as opposed to escaping into ideology, escaping into all these other things. It squarely puts people where they need to be. So I'm a big promoter of that. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a yes saying. Um, it's an affirmative morality. And I think the way to understand it, it's, it, it maybe gets a little paradoxical, but I think it'll make sense, especially to you, um, that it's almost like what Nietzsche sees is that in looking at the Greeks as the as a life affirming morality, right? What's useful to Nietzsche about that is then he then perceives that the Christian uh, good and evil idea that that binary, in some sense, is itself opposed to the pagan assessment of good and bad, right? The pagans, the Greeks, basically said, "I'm good, myself, our class, our people. We're the good, the beautiful, the noble, the happy," and the bad is sort of like an afterthought. They didn't define themselves in opposition to other people. They said, this is our way mm -hmm. of life and affirmed it. Mm -hmm. And then they just sort of, they, they, if they negate anything or reject anything, it's sort of like what the way Nietzsche talks about where one cannot love, one should pass by. It wasn't like I have to make war on this. It was just like, well, that's not me. That's for you. And then when you look at the Christian morality that overthrew that, it defines itself like almost intentionally by the inverse of everything that the pagans were, right? Or it's the, like mm -hmm. that's like Nietzsche's contention. And so, if you're just going to define yourself as being the opposite of what the Christians are, in a way, you could say that's a lot of what the quote-unquote woke movement is doing. And then that's why the reaction to that can't be like, well, we're just going to define ourselves in opposition to whatever you are, right? Uh, which I think is sort of what you're getting at is like you have to have a new affirmative vision that is like uh that's your own that stands on its own and it doesn't stand just in opposition to something else because if you do that you're still playing into that same like fundamental game and my kind of i've thought a lot about like where these kind of like the masochism of the west comes from and i think a lot of it is that people you know it's it's a really is an upper class movement or it, it originates from the upper classes um you know not the elons of the world but those professional managerial class type people. And because, you know, it comes out of the Ivy League schools, it comes out of the like top universities and the top institutions in the country. I mean, we have like the CIA doing like woke ads and stuff now, right? Like, um, so it's like the military industrial complex is on board. Everyone's on board. All the, the respectable button down institutions and the individuals who are re really well educated and have sort of climbed the bureaucratic uh, ladders are on board. And I, I was thinking about it when you were talking about how it's like a war against nature. And uh, there's that Nietzsche aphorism that in times of peace, a warlike man turns upon himself. That to some extent, yeah. a lot of this is just a vent for people to make war on something and have a war. Um, and I think it's that for a lot of these people, 
they followed that utilitarian goal, right? As far as they could go. And so now they have like a McMansion, they have like a granite countertop and they have like, you know, two cars, a dog and a cat. And, uh, you know, they're binging Netflix or whatever. And in between working some job they don't really care about. And they realize like, I'm not happy. And so what do you do when you've achieved like the opposite results you're going for? Just do the opposite thing. And so then they start getting off and not getting off. They start saying, like, I'm not going to use a plastic straw because that's killing the environment. I'll make the sacrifice of using a paper straw. Or I'm going to um, have to, I'm going to forgo some luxury or something that I used to enjoy for the good of the environment, for example. That's just like one thing you could say. Or I'm going to go to like one of these dinners. Um, there was like a recent trend where um, they, they put on these dinners for white women to attend where it was like two women of color basically just like lecture them and tear into them the whole time. And it's like $50,000 oh a plate. Oh my God. Oh it's like a luxury God. dinner that you host at your house and you pay like an absorbent fee that the average person couldn't afford, right? Like your actual proletarian could never afford to go to this. And so it's like, it raises the question of why then, right? And I think it is because it's like, if your contentment doesn't, you know, uh, stability, Contentment, stability, complacency, that's a better word, right? Um, safety and complacency doesn't make you happy. And so then they get into this position and they're like, well, that's what I thought would make me happy. And so now they're like, okay, I have to attack my own happiness. And then it becomes really crazy when they start, you know, uh, basically saying we have to attack everyone's happiness <laughs> because that gives, it gives them a sense of like, it's like a moral superiority or moral pleasure that they didn't get before, right? They were seeking material pleasures but being able to say like, oh, I like use it, drive an electric car and I only shower like twice a week now to save on water and I'm replacing my gas stove with an electric stove, whatever the hell it might be, right? These meaningless gestures that aren't going to solve anything. Um, but that's a way of like distinguishing yourself, right? Of recreating that order of rank that they would probably say they're against, <laughs> like against all hierarchy. Well, you're just creating a moral hierarchy. Um, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything more you want to say? I don't interrupt. Oh no, no, that's good. Um, yeah. Uh, There's like, man, it's it's amazing. Again, just to bring back to that Rome thing, but it's surreal to read through the decline of Rome and the gradual decline that happened, and see any of these patterns show up. So many of the stuff, like as I said, like you're describing the the middle class, the maybe upper middle class, maybe even rich women, you know, embrace these these. Um, it's like BDSM, you know, they embrace this self castigating whipping. You know, they want to feel bad about something, and you saw that in Rome. Like it, it was constant discussions of how you know your wife turns Christian, and then it's not going to be long before the senator is going to turn then as well because his haggarding wife is just going to like annoy him about it until he basically says this is what you're going to do. And many of these civil administrations, like the Christianity, it was very savvy and like very intelligent. And Wasn't Constantine's it, it, mother a Christian first? I, I, th I, I, I'm not too sure, but I believe she was. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think so. Sorry. Just... Yeah. And there's um. There's a couple of other strange examples of this that uh, I, I just can't bring it to mind. But in a general sense, like the civil administration, you know, the managerial caste is exactly as you're talking about. They, they were huge. I think Tellurian as well was bragging about that, how it's all all the cities are full of it. And particularly in the cities that like 
you know, the administration, which in our terms would be the people collecting your taxes, the people running post offices, the people running, uh, you know, stamping out government jobs, the CIA, these, these, this type of administrational stuff all switched to Christianity. And this just killed people dead in the water because then the state apparatus swapped over. And it's surreal to see this, this type of stuff manifest again. And you kind of ask yourself, you're like, is it some type of natural cycle, you know? Like something grows big and toxic, like Rome. Rome genuinely did go and conquer this entire Mediterranean basin. And did it really have a plan? Did it know? It was like a dog chasing a wheel. And then it captures all this stuff and it burns itself out. And then it's like a, it's like the way when you watch a, an asteroid hit the ocean, you know? All the water spreads out in this giant wave. And then, of course, all the water has to suck back in again. It's eventually going to have to replace the displaced, um, displaced space that is after going into it. And so Rome is sort of like that. It explodes and then it pulls back in and it sucks in all these people from the basin. It develops this new identity and it just basically just shreds itself to pieces pieces you know and then um, basically falls apart and it's like is the west did the west just kind of hit that point i remember reading this about nietzsche there's another hardcore he's basically like what right do we have to say that we have to stop the decline maybe 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 it's you know maybe this thing it's like a life cycle it's over you know so we're preparing for something new god is dead like it, christianity is done you know and it's like we're, we're going to lose many things we're going to gain many opportunities but it's it's like we can't stop it and the more you try to stop it, it is like he calls it a procrustean bed, which is such a beautiful allegory for it, where, you know, they get a procrustean bed is from the Greek myths for, for the listeners might not know. And um, they get this guy in these, these Greek myths and they they want to put him in like a, a, I don't know, a coffin or something like this. And he doesn't fit. So they, they put him on this bed and they basically size him up and it's like his legs sticking out. So they cut off his foot. And they cut off his arm and they cut off his other arm by the elbow or something like this. And it's like, that's how you're making it fit, you know? The, the shape doesn't fit, so you cut the man to make it make sure that he fits into it, putting a square peg in a round hole. And you see that type of thing where we're, we're oscillating now back to Christianity and it's like, what if that's just reaction? You know, you're just, you're reacting. You're like a pagan. You're like, do you know who you could describe uh, Jordan Peterson and the Christians as? Maybe as Julian the Apostate. Yeah, I was, about, last, I was uh, about to say that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like the last pagan, pagan dude. And he goes up and he does a good job of it. And he gets this really rational, interesting person. You read his ap apologetics for the Hellenics, and it's far more sophisticated than any of the Christians talking at the time. But the problem is, is that he just didn't have the momentum of the times on his side. It was inevitable. You know, it was going to happen and it was going to get pulled down. And what's going to happen with us? Fuck knows, man. It's absolutely crazy. But absolutely, uh, when you try to psychoanalyze it, you see an awful lot of that stuff is that people crave for purpose. Like women sit there and they have, you know, they're rich. They're like Marge Simpson and, and they're drinking wine in their automated house. It's like, well, what happens then? It's like you're left with only your passions and your emotions and you're going to get seduced by, by your heart at that point. And so women are very instinctively pitiful and they're very instinctively empathetic. And that's, of course, a brilliant thing about them. That's in their nature. But they're going to project that as a unit towards something like this and it's so fascinating studying even women in and of themselves women for example were the diligent christians of the past this kind of way that christianity uh, was 100 years ago even maybe 200 years ago but especially like about 150 years ago 200 years ago is the women would have all been diligent hardcore moralistic christians and they would have believed that like the way they believe their woke morality now and the men were all liberal atheists going out to these like uh, like um, the Hellfire Lodges and the Freemason Lodges and getting drunk and talking about science. And, you know, the <laughs> likes of Darwin, Charles Darwin's a perfect example of this, you know. He goes out and he's like, uh, 
inventing evolution and he goes home to his wife and his wife is basically like I can't talk to you anymore because she's a, she's a, a pious Christian and so he's splitting away and she's staying with this and now it's flipped where you've got all the men watching what's happened with the women and the women are all like radical atheists now and they're sort of like they believe this feminism thing like it's a, a woke religion and it's like they do because they attach to these type of things the, the Romans said this too they said the women and foreigners are prone to superstition and this is just the way that nature works you know doesn't it just is what it is and so when women are in a late stage capitalist or late stage super society they're going to have these instincts and they're going to project it on something and it's a very difficult question to know even what to do about it you know like how how do you solve this no I, nobody's figured it out so far or else you know every empire be living forever and then the men are the same problem they're seduced by these big dreams you've got an ambitious guy and he's sitting down there and if all the dreams he, he's being told about is like you know maybe uh you know whatever whatever the myths of the culture are and he goes along and he's like right i'm going to make a cryptocurrency because that's going to be the big dream that's going to change the world and all this stuff and he ends up just rug pulling some you know a thousand poor bastards or something like this it's like you're going to get seduced towards these type of things that this is the only ideas in circulation and so ultimately this instinct this demoralizing instinct this this when somebody becomes physiologically weak when a people become physiologically weak they can't believe in high hopes anymore. They can't believe in Julius Caesar's vision anymore. And so they start to get entranced by pathetic things, fallen things, things that actually make their situation worse, you know? And this is, I think, Nietzsche's very bombastic attempt to say, how do we aim for something ascendant and Promethean and beyond and, and high so that we can reignite that energy and maybe we can have a Napoleonic explosion that will actually take us towards a new arc of civilization. And this is like his very positive frame. He doesn't say this, but I'm sort of uh, imposing it upon it. We probably think of ourselves as like the Romans in the falling Roman Empire. Why not think of yourself as the German? Why not think of yourself as the, the, the I shouldn't say German because there's no such thing, but like the Goths charging in from the north who are going to become the future kings of Europe? Like that's a positive vision. And that's uh, an example of people winning in a decline. And in the great irony of fate, those Germans, the Germanic people, who are basically like Germany, England, and the US are now the people going through the Roman fall. And so who are gonna be the people who stand up and see, see an ascendant future, see themselves have a future basically out of this mess that we're going through? Yeah, well, and I think um, that's, you know, it's, Part of the value of Nietzsche talking about a tragic worldview or a pessimism of strength is, in some sense, being able to like let go of what's going to happen in the future and aim for basically be be willing to not go quiet into the into that good night, you know, and say I am going to aim for this regardless of whether or not you know maybe society will rise up like a tidal wave and crush me for it. But uh, this is who and what I am, and I can't be any different. And, you know, that's why Nietzsche talks about being untimely and kind of having to stand outside the times or stand outside of the, you know, the time and place that you're from. And part of that could include, like, I'm not going to conceive of myself as the late Roman. I'm going to be the Teutonic, <laughs> you know, a barbarian. Um, and uh, I think that's great, you know. Um, we are hitting at about two hours, though. I think we should probably oh, yeah. wrap up here. Um, okay, sweet. Do you think, okay, so what, like, what is the most important lesson that you think you've learned from Nietzsche? Um, so first of all, I'd like to say that that articulation, that observation of the, the tragic 
worldview, but I guess it's like tragic affirmative, the way that he's framing it, the strong pessimism he said, is actually like a really good articulation of, of the kind of energy that, um, yeah, would make sense. Because I look at, at all this stuff and I look at the narratives that are out there. And I don't, you know, it's very rare that you see somebody who's sort of like, oh, the West is declining. And some some guys will, like, first of all, a lot of people just deny that. And then some guys embrace it, but they say, oh, it's fucked, become black-pilled or, you know, like, uh, ride the, 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 the tiger, I guess. And it's very rare for people to say, look, even maybe the West isn't declining, maybe it is, but whatever's happening, all the chaos that's going on, like, I want to launch upon it and embrace it and, and, and grab onto something. I want to, I want to, like, you know, you're never going to be born in a perfect time. If you're born 500 fucking years ago, you'd be complaining about the Protestant revolution. Right. If you're born... You know, 500 years before that, you'd be complaining about the Muslims taking over Spain. There's no, there's no perfect time. There's always, uh, there's always something going wrong. And it kind of comes down to like, who, like, what is the winner instinct? Winner instinct is the, the guy who's born in whatever age, who wrestles to make sure that he comes out on top and he puts himself in a position where he's succeeding and he's asserting his reality, his value, his creativity. He's putting out his forms, his culture, his belief in himself, his image of himself, these types of things. I think that is gold standard the way that people just don't think and specifically the west the western people have a, a cuckolded mindset they have a very very weak sense of themselves and even when they can rehab that and become aware that they shouldn't be they shouldn't allow people to demonize them and impose a, a guilty conscience upon them that's you know the first pit of nature that a lot of people get they never seem to, to are able to get the next step which is to say well what does it mean for us to put our best foot forward and say what does it mean to win who are we and what do we want to create? And like, how do we want to impose our forms upon the world? How do we want to present our music? We used to have such high music, such incredible music, and we, we've kind of lost that a lot. Like uh, now we, we don't believe in ourselves anymore. We don't believe in our songs. What, what has happened to this type of stuff? How do, we, how do we put that type of energy forward? And I think that energy is precisely what Nietzsche was trying to grab. He was complaining about romanticism in a very similar way that he would probably look around now and see a lot of people saying, I want to go back, traditionalism. He'd be like, it's, it's the same romanticism. Like that's of people who are fucked, who are like pining for an identity while the world falls apart around them. It's the wrong energy. He's looking for something much more assertive, something much more ballsy, something much more vital that's pushing forward. And I, if I was to then answer the question you were saying, I think that is the money note. Like, I think that's the most valuable thing you can get from him. Awesome. Well, uh, Steph, it's been great. Um, do you have, uh, do you want to go over your plugs and or anything you want to <laughs> shout out to at the end? Well, first I'll say if any of the boyos, because I'll try to send some boyos over from YouTube or wherever this is going to go up. And um, if you are listening, please give this gentleman a follow and a, a like and a subscribe and drop a comment as well. Tell us what you thought. Just give him a bit of a boost because he sent up a brilliant Nietzsche channel. I listen to it myself and he's um, very good. He's very penetrative, very uh, thorough. And he doesn't, he's not like an awful lot of stuff there about Nietzsche's, you know, layering on uh, problematic things about it, saying things, you know, caveats and trying to educate you how to interpret them. Instead, this man just explains to you what Nietzsche thought and um, is, you know, properly properly scholarly about it and it's fantastic. So give him a shout and then anybody uh, who's who does not know me, I guess you can just check out YouTube. That's where I'm doing most of what I'm doing. Um, I did just spoke Zarathustra as an AI piece of art there recently, so I was experimenting with his new tech to see how well it could go. I'm not, I'm not sure if it was, uh, you know, maybe Hollywood standard, but it's it's definitely a whack at something. So if you're interested, you give that a look. And um, thank you very much for your time, sir, and all everyone listening. And stay juicy and have a good one. Thank you. All right, we're signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash 
Untimely Reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.